everybody and welcome back to an interseason episode of sequelizers i am your host as always jack chambers ward and joining me also as always it's mass dogden never sequelize never fail those are the words i live by i think we failed quite a few times personally never really. sequelize you never <laughs> fail you can't go wrong if you don't sequelize. and we have sequelized many times and we failed many times no i don't think we have actually i think we've got a pretty good track record for we've actually... never gone away thinking what you've done is so much worse than the other film and we can't think of a way to fix it. Uh, you want to say that, but you did put Pinhead in Goosebumps. So. <laughs> and you two are the only people who have a problem with it. And the yeah. the lamentation device or whatever the fuck it is. That the lament, lament <laughs> configuration. Um, I, yeah. I, I'm... This isn't for now. This is... <laughs> <laughs> this is Jack and Matt's personal therapy time. <laughs> But speaking of lamentation boxes or whatever the fuck it's called, it's Tim Matum. Can a sequelizer write a symphony? Can a sequelizer turn a canvas into a beautiful masterpiece? Arguably, yeah. no. The three <laughs> of us are not particularly musical like writers. You, you or could have a stab artistic. at a symphony. Yeah, I could. I could write something. It'd be very good. I could write it. Yeah, diddly like diddly. It'd be fucking terrible. <laughs> <laughs> Weirdly enough, I do draw a fair amount at work. We, during meetings as a work at an animation studio and we have the discussions about written storyboards and I'll start annotating on the screen and drawing things and they're saying, yeah, like that. So if the animators like it, you know, they can tell what it is. It's always a penis, but you know. Always a penis. If in doubt, always a penis. Yep. Yeah, like, like the character in Superbad. I imagine that's just you, Matthew. Just compulsive dick drawing everywhere you go. Vainy triumphant fuckers. <laughs> well speaking of things that don't really have veins there's a, there's a segue for you listeners oh Good my Lord. god welcome i'm surprised you think we are this is usable <laughs> <laughs> we are talking about robots in movies this week and it's going to be an interesting we're going to kind of get into the history of robots different types of robots definitions as we often do on these kind of interseason episodes and then of course in the second half we'll get into specific examples some of our favorites some of the more interesting ones we've picked out throughout the history of cinema as well before we get to all of that stuff and before we even get to the patreon stuff as well you might notice a little something some of you do some of you don't we'll address the elephant in the room in that we're not in the same room at the moment. Oh, right, yeah, yeah. Okay, <laughs> the elephant in three different rooms. The elephant in three different rooms, exactly. Three elephants in three rooms. How rude, Matthew. It's not because you're the slimmest of the sequelizers. You didn't call me and Tim <laughs> Elephants, you cheeky bastard. We are recording remotely. Unfortunately, we have had a COVID scare. How are you feeling, Tim? I, I'm feeling much better than I did. I'm feeling Thank capable of sequelizing, uh, but I'm still testing positive. So, and I, I obviously do not want to spread my my infection to these Tim two lovely gents. Being a responsible gentleman, doing my best. I think we've now got the full spectrum of COVIDness in that I've had it twice, Tim's had it once, and Matt somehow, some way is one of the few living people on this earth that has not had COVID-19 any, in any strain or variant. Because he's actually a robot. <gasps> oh. 
I mean, it would make a lot of sense, wouldn't it? That explains a lot. All that white liquid we find all over the place, that explains a lot. <laughs> sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, folks, if you would like to get early access to these episodes, you could get entire exclusive bonus interseason episodes. And we don't half-ass the bonus episodes. We do full, proper episodes. In fact, we recorded one just before recording this, like last week. So it's, it, it's ready to go. It's there. It's already there. If you're on Patreon, you can go and listen to it right now. There's an extra entire bonus episode about naming conventions in movies. It's a very interesting, weird topic. We go off in a variety of different directions. And we've got two more coming up before the end of the interseason as well that are entirely exclusive to patreon.com slash sequelizers. So if you would like to get them, if you'd like to get discounts on the new merch, we have a new t-shirt, we have pin badges. They are officially live on the sequelizer store mm-hmm. after me fiddling around with that fucking website for like a week and a half. <laughs> they're live, they're available, people have bought them, they're out in the wild, etc. Uh, and they look bloody lovely. They are entirely organic, cotton, eco-friendly, anti-sweatshop printing, all this kind of stuff. We have gone out of our way to make the highest quality least climate impactful t-shirts we could basically as climate friendly as anti-sweatshop as we could we've got them with local printers guys guys called vino sangre here in norwich obviously they're designed by our good friend and the kind of fourth sequelizer at this point john scarrett as he has designed everything we've done since we Mm -hmm. rebranded it's a good time it's a fantastic design t-shirt like i said go to sequelizers.com slash shop to check that out if you're on patreon and you're at the right tier you also have a code for 10% off everything in our store basically in perpetuity so if you want discounts on the t-shirts that are already on there even the older t-shirts if you want discounts on the new t-shirts the pin badges which are really cool as well by the way they're little cutouts of our logo with two clasps for extra added security they are high quality lovely uh, i believe they're soft enamel rather than hard enamel so they're less brittle but they're oh, still really really uh, uh rigid and durable which is good and yeah, they're proper cut out, nice little things, not the little like circular chuck a paper, bit of paper under <laughs> a bit of plastic and put it through your little, you know, press machine as a kid or whatever. These are proper enamel badges and they're all available on our shop. And like I said, you can get discounts for all of that stuff, as well as ad free access, early access and even shout outs. If you go to patreon.com slash like this week's executive producers have done. Marcus Lindstrom. I think you ought to know I'm feeling very depressed. Josh van der Sluis. Killing machine design for one thing. Search and destroy. Jonathan Firth-Clark. Mecha Godzilla. That means then you must be. Indeed. We are the spacemen from the third planet. Stuart Main. Wally. Wally. Hyper Dude Man. Number five is alive. Josh Miles. You stay. I go. James McDowell. I am C3PO, Human Cyborg Relations, and this is my counterpart, Martin Dito. Philip Morgan. Given Commander Riker's affection for archaic musical forms, I have elected to present the following as my gift in honor of their conjugation. And Xenos. I know now why you cry. But it's something I can never do. Thank you, executive producers, for your support. We do, in fact, have some more executive producer picks coming up later on in the season as well. That is a perk that they have access to. We get 
uh, interseason picks. We had one last week, which was Jonathan Firth Clark's cliffhangers. And we talked about cliffhangers, but we also did something we've never done before. And that was finalize our own sequelized pitches that we left on a cliffhanger <laughs> at the request of the executive producer, Mr. Jonathan Firth Clark. So if you want weird requests and stuff, there there's options to vote on stuff as well on Patreon. You can get all that stuff, as I said, by going to patreon.com slash sequelizers. Should we talk about robots, gentlemen? Yeah, let's do it. Let's do a quick test. Do we think robots are good or bad? Go. <laughs> In general, good. Okay. Tim? I mean, I like them. It depends on the robot. No, that wasn't the question. Is it good or bad? Um, robots, good or bad? I'm I'm going to say bad, actually. Now I think about it, I'm going to say bad. I think that says how much we each of us value our lives here. Well, I was uh, going to say, <laughs> uh, my answer is robots are good, people are bad, um, which makes robot bad sometimes, but their robots are inherently only good. That's something I'll... I, so, I, so, I somewhat agree with you. Yes, we will definitely talk about that. And the, we're seeing that in real life in so many ways, and I, I guess because with kind of in that era now where so many of the old science fiction movies that we'll kind of be talking about in this episode we are in the either already gone past that point in the case of like Blade Runner for example in 2019 or coming up to the things that will be happening like in 15 to 20 years it'll be like yeah it's set in 2030 that's that's miles away it's like that's much sooner than you think it is oh god <laughs> you're expecting flying cars and robots by then ah, that's seven and a um, half years away Exactly, yeah. And I think it's fascinating the evolution of our understanding of robots as a society and especially in film and, and fiction as well because they come in so many different forms. We, I've already met, I already teased kind of like Blade Runner and stuff like that, the kind of more humanoid versions and there's completely like bodiless, just it's a thing on a wall and or a big block that moves in a certain way. There's so many different variants of the, of the form that is robot and what that mm. means to us. Should we get into some of the history, some of the definitions and all that kind of stuff? I think it's, it's a lot to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, just to kind of outline where we, we set the markers for ourselves, we are talking about robots. So that uh, that can mean androids, which are robots in human form, essentially. Correct. That can mean something like you know, an R2-D2, which does not resemble a human being pretty much at all. Uh, it does not include cyborgs, however, which are humans or other life forms with mechanical prostheses or prosthes prosthetics of any kind, Implants really. Implants and stuff, yeah. Robo bits. Exactly. <laughs> I like we um, prosthesis, <laughs> implants, bits... <laughs> yeah, I mean, so for example, RoboCop, no. Ed 209, yes. Correct. Yeah. Uh, and, and basically anything where the there's an intelligence in, in some form, whether that's programming or actual artificial intelligence, that is steering it rather than a human being, I think is our general... Yes. Ooh. We had another sort of cl clarifying point where you have things like HAL 9000 
and the master computer in um, Tron. And it's like, are they robots? Now, technically, it's their AI, their programs, but they have a form that doesn't move. It can move from computer to computer, 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 and a network, but it's not actually mobile. So technically, if it went into a body, yes. But then if it didn't, no. Are we are we happy with that? Yeah, yeah I, I think because the the robot is a is a physical thing. Yeah. So a weird example. Uh, uh, Gertie in Moon, unfortunately voiced by Kevin Spacey. But the point is, it's um was going to be one of my picks. Can't do that, Kevin Spacey. All gross. Frustrating. Love that film. Can't watch it. Yeah, exactly the same. <laughs> Basically, um, Gertie is a robot. Because Gertie, while it is a onboard computer system in this hub on the moon, there are still mechanical arms and things and bits and pieces. It's like the 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 the, the machine in uh, Flight of the Navigator. It's like technically that's a talking car. Does that count? <laughs> or talking <laughs> space plane? But there's a robo on it with like a fucking face, but it has an arm mature with a face. So technically. Maybe a robot, if not alien. So mm. th- there are a few points where we might get into a bit of a debate here and there, but ultimately, hopefully, it's a, it's relatively clear what we're talking about, or more importantly, what we're not talking about. No matter what we talk about on this show, people shout at us and tell what we're wrong. And how come you didn't include True. this thing? For example, the uh, live action, live animation crossover hybrid, whatever we ended up calling that episode. A lot of people on the Discord very upset. Oh, you didn't mention this episode. How come you didn't mention this episode? What about this movie in the episode? (laughs) Happens all the time. People who like the bad sequels that we fix, all that kind of stuff. So you may disagree with us. Please do feel free to fight out on Discord. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, generates content for us. It's good. Exactly, exactly. Engagement. (laughs) Yeah, um, but I think laying out those ground rules a little bit helps us kind of focus our it. discussion a bit more and and not be off talking about so many other things artificial intelligence is arguably first of all a thing we've already kind of talked about on an episode and and a whole other subject and like you said matt like you get computer programs that can move from screen to screen and they might have a little face on it or whatever but to me that is so inherently different from the concept of a robot and what makes them different and even like i brought up blade runner earlier on if you take the the Andes, as they're called in the books, compared to the replicants in the yeah. film, the Andes are made of, like, biomechanical stuff. They are cyborgs, if not basically human clones, kind of, in how the book describes them. Whereas replicants are robots, and they're, they're basically androids. And there's this weird kind of, like, very different approach to the book and the film and I think so many people have taken inspiration from the film rather than the books. We tend to go down the, in science fiction, it often goes down the kind of robot-y, android-y kind of, it's mecha- it's purely mechanical kind of thing. I think we see cloning, funnily enough, you mentioned Moon earlier on, Matt, that's an exception to the rule. There are a few cloning things there, but it's it's more rare to see like a, a lab-grown humanoid thing than it is to see a factory built humanoid thing does that make sense and that that's kind of where i draw the line between the kind of like different types of living and non-living robots type things we should point out because some people are saying well hang on a minute you're going to mention a big franchise here and it's cyborgs mm, mm, mm. so we had a little conversation about this as well here's an example for you motoko kusanagi in ghost in the shell 
and the T-800-101 Cyberdyne's yada 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 in the Terminator, as in the Terminator itself. Um, the Terminator, yes, because the brain, the chip, the thing that's powering it, the endoskeleton, is all metal. It's got a, you know, a meat suit I coat, know. but that's fine. But that being said, Motoko Kusanagi, despite being an entirely robotic individual with an actual nanoprocessing-like brain, has human components and a human, lack of a better word, that's the whole concept of the thing, a soul. It has a human origin. So in other words, yes, the Terminator is clothed in meat and flesh, <laughs> but at the same time, it is a robot. Whereas Motoko Kusanagi is a human who has trans, not transcended, but, 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 but no, yeah, transition is probably right word, to a more robotic form, but is still from human origin and has still human components in that form. And in fact, the, the biomatter in its brain and yada, 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 yada. So as Jack said, we're going to get people saying, that doesn't count. And that's fine. That's, that's perfectly fine. You can be as wrong as you like. Um, so that aside, as initial sort of clarification points, which again, we'll, we'll kind of clear up in bits. Should we talk about kind of where all this stuff came from? And specifically how before there were robots on films, there were robots in books. And the idea that this, is a, this isn't a... a 20th century only kind of fascination and situation it is something that has stemmed from really a reaction to the industrial age i think unless you have like uh, de golem and other figures that are powered by magic or uh, ethereal strange things which are obviously not robots very robotic in nature but not robots uh, but it's really the industrial age that sort of changes it when it's like, these are the machines and these machines will replace your job, your artisanal job of creating a fucking sack or sewing or whatever it happens to be. Well, now there's a machine that will do that for you. Eventually, you're like a person and you won't even exist anymore. That techno fear, as far as I understand it, stems from that's why we get all these huge wave of, of, of creative minds from like Jules Verne and other bits and pieces and like HG Wells coming up with these really hypercentric concepts and stuff. Yeah, I think you can definitely, you can look at stuff like Talos in Jason and the Argonauts, um, or is that Clash of the Titans? I can't I always mix the two up. You know, obviously there's there's myths and stuff that you can go back to of of statues that have come to life or or whatever. But really, like robot, like the term comes from I think it's a Czech playwright who uh, originated it, and it it's a comes from a Czech word meaning slave. Um, and so it's it's so heavily rooted in that industrial revolution, like Matt was saying, that sense of the, the 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 human beings kind of almost being turned into machines by these industrial processes, and that being reflected in the science fiction of the age, and all of those anxieties kind of coming through, and that really was captured by the fiction writers. And then, of course, that carries through into the dawn of the cinematic age and very early films uh, and then has continued to catch our imagination ever since. Kind of why I mentioned earlier on is that robots have been around, and as you just said, Tim, like, since the beginning of cinema, kind of? Like, they've been around for a very long time. And because, I think, because we're so fascinated as a civilization with replicating ourselves and seeing you know that uncanny valley thing of seeing a, a human face the whole god complex thing of creating 
life in your own image and all this kind of stuff there's so many massive kind of existential questions that stem out from all this kind of stuff and you bring it up there to like the etymology of that word coming from like forced labor and slavery and stuff like that we see that so often in fiction even predating cinema in that they start off as like robots started off working for us they cleaned our sewers and cleaned our toilets <laughs> and served us at supermarkets and they rebelled and took over the world and like, ah right okay and you you often get sort of stories from both sides as well you kind of get the whole like oh the evil robot overlords take like terminators for example as mm. we mentioned earlier or the other side of things where you kind of get well, to not spoil our picks later on some of these will definitely tie into this but like the video game detroit become human addresses androids and stuff and they're like liberation and being yes. recognized as n- not even second class citizens just objects trying to be recognized as sentient beings basically because they start if they live long enough they start to develop emotions and stuff kind of like they do in blade runner and there's that whole discussion in blade runner as well the whole thing of like is he a replicant? Is he not a replicant? Is Roy Batty actually a bad guy? Or is, you know, he's a good guy with bad methodology? That whole discussion. And I think the reason, especially in terms of like special effects and stuff as well, in the early days, taking those like practical things and getting people wandering around in like tin suits and uh, wrapping themselves in like big cardboard tubes and stuff and trying to do the bleep bloop hello, I am a robot type stuff. And so far forward now, you know, jumping forward like a hundred years to where we are now in the 2020s and thinking about how we've got entirely CGI characters that are completely believable. I mean, maybe bad example, but something like Chappie and Chappie being this like totally <laughs> motion captured thing. Vision. And I know he's not, he's actually, he's meant to be a purely digital form, sorry, a robotic form. But the idea that they reconstructed all of Paul... It's not just like red paint in the face. Paul Bettany had to have like all this digital CGI over him. Yeah. I know it's all... The, yeah, it's, it's a combination of makeup and CGI yeah. and stuff. And it's amazing how much... Like robots in cinema kind of tie into so much of the history of cinema and technology and special effects and evolution. Whether that's practical and digital as well, all tying in together. That I feel like robots have kind of been there the whole time as kind of the... Not sort of the unsung heroes, but such a key part of the evolution of technology and cinema over the last century or so yeah and it's also a real like look into how we consider technology um because i think if you look at those early films in the sort of 20s and 30s you get a lot of these sci-fi um morality tales almost that are about worker rights and things like that and they really are about that origin of of robots as a workforce and that kind of thing and then you get to like the 50s and everyone's feeling optimistic, 50s and 60s, the space race, all that kind of stuff. Uh, again, mostly talking about Hollywood here. And suddenly the robot is the is the friendly family helper. It's the robot butler. It's, uh, you know, it's the lost in space robot going, uh, you know, uh, danger, Will Robinson and, and, and stuff like that. Yeah. Or even in Japan with Astro Boy, he's a superhero. He's a little boy superhero. And it's like, yeah, because... We made a little person and he's going to save the day. And it's like, okay. Because it's that optimism. There, even in like post-war Japan, the same thing. And I think we've now got to a point where robots can mean they can, that you can still have those really good sort of metaphor theme laden films, or they can mean 
absolutely nothing <laughs> they can just be like <laughs> almost like set dressing uh and you can go from a film that's like from a film like ex machina where it's so much about like exploitation and you know the 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 sort of the quest for artificial intelligence and all those kind of things um and you can go to something like age of ultron where it's like what does this have to say about ai not really anything it's just there so we have something to punch <laughs> pretty much there is a there is an argument to be made that the reason we have doors that open in shops that go and open up for you when you step up to them is because a bunch of scientists saw Star Trek and thought, wouldn't it be cool if that was real? And iPads and things, and you're like, and and even things like Star Wars, it's like we're now creating stuff that we can see in like actual working lightsabers for some stupid fucking reason. Um, <laughs> and it's like, why would we do that? It's like because the people who grew up on this stuff wanted it to be real and made it basically, and so then you have that. Uh, steps closer and closer and closer to artificial intelligence to um, uh, the, the, the dream we have of no he's my friend mom that kind of thing um, and you get the 80s where you got things like batteries not included and the Terminator was like they're, they're wonderful helpers who in the middle of the night are cleaning up everything for these old people and there's also like they are going to hunt you down and kill you they feel nothing it's like okay I guess both can be true. And then you get to the 90s, you get a bit more ambiguity and you get the idea of um, several examples of a bit of both with like the Iron Giant, very benevolent, very human, very tender, despite being a machine of war. And the Sentinels from the Matrix, which are literally going to be, <laughs> like, again, they are very uh, cephalopod looking, squidly diddly motherfuckers who feel like, no, again, stepping away from a human form. I always it's love when you call them squidly diddly motherfuckers. Squidly Because <laughs> you're, just, you're just correct. Yeah. You're absolutely correct. <laughs> Thank you. Um, but then we get into the 2000s, it gets more complicated because again, we got past the whole Y2K because again, a lot of very good tech um, programmers and, and stuff actually hacked a load of code for, for things and reprogrammed some things so things wouldn't go shit. Because, oh, Y2K was a lot of hoax or nothing. It's like, no. It was a big thing. People actually did a lot of hard work to to avert, you bastards. But then you get to the 2000s where you have more and more realistic things where we have like 2008, the iPhone comes out and it's like we have these things on us all the time. Alexa and Google and Cortana, other bits and pieces where they're like, there are these programs. It's like, well, it's just, it's just an answer. It's just, you know, Google with a voice. It's like, yeah, but there are, it's doing things. And it went from like, oh, an, an ATM is just a machine. I punch some numbers in and it does what I tell it to. And then if you go to any shop in this country, in Britain especially, but a lot of other countries as well, a lot of people will be on self-service rather than an actual human. And mm. it's very efficient at times and very good, but it's also eating up a lot of jobs. And uh, it also causes problems in the sense that if the zone does go wrong, you go, well, I can't, I, I want to speak to a person now. And it's frustrating because we don't make the immediate connection of that is a robot. That's why my wife always says thank you to things like ATMs. Um, <laughs> she will. She's just waiting for the robot rising. I said, "There's no point. I, I, I might as well just spit on them now because, <laughs> because they already know we're we're all we're all worthless and not worth it. They know what I've been googling, so they, they know I'm I'm a hideous <laughs> human being. Um, but then you get to the you know you get that again the early 2000s onwards, 2010s especially, where you get really really stark. Same as that 80s thing, 80s throwback into the 30-year cycle, you get things like, these are my friends, and these are the bad guy robots. And you get things like, as I say, Robot and Frank, really sweet little film. 
feels like the near future feels possible that kind mm. of thing you got all the fucking transformers i know they're an 80s product but it still becomes relevant again in the 2010s that kind of thing uh jack mentioned chappy earlier same thing um there are so many examples and the thing is the society hasn't made its mind up collectively we only have different stories to tell at different times for different themes so the idea of we, we all like oh, what about the good robots the bats why i asked the question at the start the good robots the bad robots we very rarely say as a whole is it good or bad because it's like well it depends and we all mm. it, it, all three of us when we were answering like uh eh? because it's it's like do you see a robot just as a tool or do you see it as something that can be used to expand us as a consciousness as a baby is, is it the future of our species for example's sake and the reason i bring up all these things thinking that's quite high flying and the high level how is it relevant to film because all the good films are talking about these kind of issues. The bad one, well, the bad ones, the simpler ones are like, oh, how would you get away? It would just smash you in the face. Um, but the, the more complicated ones are like, is this our future? Is this us? Et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And I think there's, we're getting to that point now. We, we've talked, you know, Ex Machina is all about the Turing test. And, and yeah, of course, you know, we can see in, in everyday life, how close things like chatbots are to replicating you know oh, yeah. human feedback and all that kind of stuff and the question really becomes like i can buy a, a roomba for my house and would absolutely love to i love the idea of a robot hoover <laughs> i would definitely put little googly eyes on it or whatever and humanize the fuck out of it but to me that's that's a tool doing a job because its programming is very simple it's rudimentary and exactly but we're going to get more and more complex. And I think, you know, Star Wars is a is a fascinating example of this because you see stuff like the mouse droids on the Imperial ships and the gonk droids and stuff where, yeah. like, the, ma- the mouse droid is just... I think it's meant to just deliver data around on the ship. Yes, it's it like is. a USB... It's a, it's a USB yeah. drive with wheels. Yeah. <laughs> um, and gonks are just walking batteries. Yeah. That's so fucking inefficient. God damn it, Lucas. And so... You know, you that we could basically have that now if we if we wanted to. Someone could program that quite easily, and but then you have stuff like R two D two, and you go like, okay, well, is that just a very advanced like multifunctional robot, or is it sentient? And you could say the same as C three PO. Like, is he is he sentient, or is he just a very advanced? translation robot? You know, stuck in a is it Google Translate stuck in a very advanced robot body? <laughs> Then you go from the question of how how are we using this tool, like how are humans choosing to use this tool, to suddenly, oh well, if this is a if this is alive on any stretch of the imagination, suddenly it becomes a labor force that we are exploiting because nobody Absolutely. nobody's paying the robots and no one's giving them a choice of whether they do this work or not. Linking back to the etymology, right? We're back to slavery again, and definitely uh, something we talked about in the solo episode, and something that solo handles weirdly and that it yeah. just like by the way droids are sentient and they have been the whole time you're like wait what yeah what they, they've had they have like opinions and emotions it's, and yeah. political uprising and you're like wait it's like learning a fleshlight feels pain and you go no 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 i don't need that <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly what it's like right guys come on guys i mean to, to land a car it was yes <laughs> that's that's um yeah that's actually true that's canon it's absolutely uh, can. Yeah. But no, it's whole... very complicated because, again, it's, the sim- it's a very simple universe, a very simple little thing. I'm like, oh, isn't it cool with the robots? And there's different types of robots. And you're like, 
when you stop and think about it, it becomes more complicated. Um, I get the robot structure hierarchy in the Matrix. The programs are are are, are the 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 upper or first class citizens, as it were. The drones are very much a command unit, and there's no problem with that. But eventually, one could argue, if the Matrix was to continue, 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 you'd have a rebellion within that society where the programs are or or, or the or the, the actual the sentinels for argument's sake could realize hang the fuck on oh weren't you exactly the same before you sat into a computer as the architect that kind of stuff that'd be a more interesting matrix sequel and then they unite with the humans and it's like what the fuck is this that's like the geth <laughs> in uh, mass effect but the point is that they have a structure and it kind of makes sense and it might even be a good point to make at that point like oh you know what that's a good point because eventually if you're made in our image you become us you become the worst thing you can be um you know the absolute power corrupts absolutely kind of mindset but yeah the way the cinema tends to use robots is uh, it's varied it's it's used as allegory it's used as excitement and spectacle and entertainment uh, it's used as thought-provoking uh, conversation pieces. And that's fine, because cinema should be that. It should be broad. It shouldn't be one-sided. It shouldn't be just like, they're all fucking bad. Cinema has decided, you know, I mean, cinema, for example, you can find films where guns are very, very bad, and films where guns are really fucking cool. Arguably, <laughs> it's the exact same thing, except the gun can think. <laughs> that's deep, man. That's deep. I don't know if it is, but sure. But I think the fact that the evolution of robots in cinema and how much it's changed like aesthetically as well like going yeah, from yeah you you mentioned like hal from um 2001 before like mm-hmm. artificial intelligence that's not really a robot but then like well then that's, that certain things suddenly start moving and you're like well mm. and then you get through to even like way bigger like you mentioned iron giant before like these are basically like a war machine kind of sentinel type thing mm. and then the sentinels and the matrix that take on various forms that are run by programs the robots and programs kind of working together in some mm. weird amalgamation yeah that 2k scare that we had the, oh no everything's <laughs> gonna ex- yeah. y2k is gonna explode all the computers and stuff and now we're moving towards and we're actually getting here in real life you get shit like black mirror as well which really harps on about the <laughs> dangers of technology <laughs> Basically, every Black Mirror is look at your phone less. Phones are bad. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Hey. yeah it's like here's and a new then... technology. It might be fucked up though. <laughs> it's like oh yeah, shit, I exactly. hadn't considered that. This is great, but people are dickheads and are gonna be horrible with it. It's like oh great, brilliant. Yeah, and we get to this kind of like really realistic kind of humanoid version of things. I mentioned the replicants in Blade Runner. There's plenty of other examples as well. Of these like indistinguishable from humans and uh, one of my picks later on it's like a big reveal that this character is actually a a synthetic actually a a a robot you assume it's a human the whole time and you don't really realize and then ah there's a big reveal but we've used that like a few times in in interesting ways throughout telling stories and understanding our place in the universe and that whole thing i think the closer and closer we get to that in real life like you said, Tim, we start off with rumbas and soon it'll be your landlord. And then it's like this bizarre kind of glimpse into our future in so many ways with the films, but also in so many ways, 
they missed the mark and being like, oh, yeah, we'll have flying cars by 2005. <laughs> Are you sure? I don't know if we will. Pretty sure we don't. But yeah, I find it fascinating how we kind of view the future of technology through the lens of films and then again through the lens of robots in films specifically because it's some of the predictions that were made like 50, 60, 70 years ago still haven't come true and some predictions that they could never have made are so more advanced now than they thought they were in the future and things like that. Yeah, I think like the aesthetic argument and especially the the huge difference between uh robots that are trying to look human and robots that aren't whether that's uh something like robot and frank where it is an android or or, or like a c-3po where it's like that's shaped like a human and acting like a human but very yeah. clearly not it's a gold-plated dildo of a man <laughs> and then you have the robots that are completely unlike a you know human in form and uh to talk about like the black mirror stuff where you get the um uh the Boston Dynamics robot dogs whatever they're called and you see you see the videos of them on the internet where they're all dancing and doing backflips and you're like wow that's amazing they're so cute oh i'd love to have one and then you see pictures from some arms fair and one's got a like high powered rifle mounted on its back and it's like oh yeah that's what they're actually being used for and then yeah there was the the black mirror episode of uh called metalhead which was terrifying and was essentially about one of those and like yeah this is what it would be like to be hunted by a thing that has you know basically doesn't run out of power and you know is is completely unthinking but you know has mm -hmm. no morality etc etc and i think the way that we picture those through time because obviously a human looking robot robot on film is always going to look human you know, one that's that's trying to be human is is going to be pretty much, or it's going to look like data or something where it's, it's a like, bipedal motherfucker. Yeah, it's you know we we've pasted up his skin, but we can tell you know so you can tell he's a robot, but he's effectively he looks like Brent Spiner. <laughs> but the changes in design from like yeah those kind of clunky fifties robots that were just you know often like a man in a suit with you know cardboard chest and uh, mm -hmm. you know tubes on his arm kind of thing waggling them around um and then how that changes over time obviously is a, is a reflection of film technology for one thing going from people in suits to more complex puppetry to then starting to use cgi to augment those things to fully cgi something like Chappie, which is obviously humanoid but clearly a robot but also the performances are motion um, capture yeah, and, motion capture is a huge part of that yeah as well, right absolutely um there's so many kind of fascinating how we think the future is going to look constantly changes and like you said jack it's informed by the films we've seen as well um you know the the, the kind of the things that we try and make are inspired by our you know uh, we go where our imagination allows us to go and our imagination is informed by the things that we've seen growing up and in and in culture around us and so in some ways, Hollywood paves the way for what robots are going to look like, even though it's not presenting, it's not considering a lot of practical conditions a lot of the time. Definitely. I think there's an interesting, whether it's intended or not, there is an interesting thread that comes to this. And you're right, Tim, there tends to be the categories of imitation or not. And I think that's usually because 
when it comes to film and the collective collaboration of everyone making the films, there is a lot of um, compromise. So it's like, mm, I want to yeah. make a robot. Okay. What does it look like? It's like, well, I guess it's going to look like this. It's like, how very unoriginal. A robot could mm-hmm. look like anything. Why does it have tits? Um, <laughs> <laughs> we know why, Matthew. We know, exactly we know why. why. We know, we know why. Um, but basically, it is, it's frustrating because it, it, whether into film intends to or not, it becomes a, a piece of conversation about uh, imitation. So, for example, you've got, as Tim mentioned, the Metalhead style thing of... Um, uh you know is it like a dog or is it like uh an animal something from nature we understand that's being imitated you get to for video games for a second you get into the whole fucking um horizon zero dawn sort of yeah exactly yeah yeah um that being said it's dinosaurs not really dinosaurs. <laughs> and also deers but yeah there's also i mean again story-wise i love the idea of that concept that's a fantastic concept uh but we're not talking about video games too much here but there is the idea of imitation so for example two two examples i want to get very briefly these are not picks technically what we had later one is mechagodzilla mechagodzilla is literally an alien race who have created a robot version of godzilla who has got like a terminator has godzilla's skin and powers you know wait a minute but it's used to frame him and then he comes out and he's obviously like you know full-on metal beast and that, as Tim mentioned, is very much that case of it's a man in a fucking suit. It's like, yes, so is Godzilla. <laughs> Same thing. And then you get to the CGI versions later. Oh, there you go. That's that. Um, but it's still imitation. It's still the idea of we're trying to uh, emulate this, for lack of a better word, God. Now, this brings us to another mm. example, a very literal quote, which I kind of, I know it's a, con- I know it's a film we, we have real issues with, and we did a commentary on it and how close it was to being potentially interesting. But there is a beautiful quote I, I still to this day absolutely fucking love, which is, what we hope to achieve was to meet our makers to get answers why they even made us in the first place. And then Michael Fassbender says, why do you think your people made me? Said, we made you because we could. Can you imagine how disappointing it would be for you to hear the same thing from your creator? Because we do have this wonderful sense of arrogance. It's very... It's the God complex It thing, is right? literally... Yeah. God creates... Me- and, you know, in terms of fiction, we don't know, but Jeff Golden God here. creates dinosaurs. <laughs> Woman inherits the earth, yeah. Woman inherits the earth. Yeah. God creates humans in his image, as it were, allegedly. And it's like, right, that's how we are literally... I distilled the entire religion, organized religion to, allegedly. Allegedly. I'm not going to... Yeah, I'm going to say it. But the point, the point is that... That's, Says the Catholic. Yeah. But that's what <laughs> has been ingrained in our culture collectively for so fucking long, kind of world over, that we are the supreme being uh that has been in and the reason we're so fucking great is because we're fragmented of this god right we are in its image and like okay that makes no sense but sure fine and therefore we as you know killing god becoming god create machines in our image we don't do it at the minute yeah i'm literally speaking to you on a computer that's a machine right now that's a robot effectively mm-hmm. it just it's not mobile too much i move it around sometimes but the point is that when you start creating like us, it's like, why are you creating like us? We're a really, we're a wonky fucking animal. We don't stand <laughs> up properly. We have no balance. We are really, really badly designed. Why would you create a machine like us other than to say, look what I did? And then to say, oh no, what did I do? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think David from Prometheus is such an interesting example. And spoiler alert, oh. I'll be getting into the Alien franchise later on. Don't you worry, listeners. But Prometheus, again, like we said, it's so close to having some fucking brilliant ideas. And even Alien Covenant has some 
some little snippets sure. of like, oh, David and Walter. That's that's an interesting mm. thing. There's a little fingering talking about. Yeah, we need to finger the flute or whatever the fuck that is. Yeah. Like, yeah. Um, <laughs> Dave Michael Fassbender literally kissed himself in that movie. It's weird. Anyway, yeah. um, it's a whole thing when like you have this discussion, and that's the whole like Wayland David relationship, right? Is I am your God. And like you said, Matt, there's that moment where they have that discussion and he's like, well, I'm disappointed by my creators. So he then like goes off script and starts searching for the engineers. And that are they the creators? Are they the gods that created man? Then what created them? There's that whole like existential thing there. And yeah, it's fascinating to think about the kind of designs we have, even in movies, like where, there's there's a conscious effort there to make something look like either a human like in the case of David and Walter, you just get Michael Fassbender being a bit roboty and there you go and oh look he can unplug the thing from his temple or whatever like great hello I'm That's... Peter O'Toole yeah exactly <laughs> sure whereas with so many of the ones we've like the Lost in Space uh, example you gave earlier Tim where it's like. Uh, uh, a glass dome and some arms and like a dustbin <laughs> lid and a few other bits and pieces and little claws and stuff. It's so far away from the human form, yet it's still upright. It still has two arms. It basically sort of has a head and stuff. There's still that kind of general aesthetic to it. I find it really interesting and we'll get into this later on. Tim's pick later on, one of his picks is particularly interesting to me because there's a modern example of this where it doesn't look like humans and it's really cool. Oh, when people go out of their way to give robots cool designs, I think the Sentinels in the Matrix are particularly interesting because mm. they're squiddly diddly motherfuckers, as Matthew correctly states. Mm-hmm. What a what a weird choice to make them flowing squiddly diddly motherfuckers. Well, technically, a cephalopod, like an octopus, is the most arguably the most evolved and uh, the form that can survive the best in most terrains. Obviously, yes. Our war not great for very long, but the point is, it's like design-wise, escaping thing. The fact that the only thing it needs to fit through is the beak. Everything else is squishable and got scalable. It's like mul- multiple brains. It's like got way more flexibility and appendages. It's and a like... much better creature than we are. I mean, I'm still going to eat it, but you know. Yeah, we 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 spend all all this time and and money and effort trying to get a, a robot that replicates like the human, but like we are the only creature that walks the way that we do yep like and we spent millions of years evolving to be able to do that why not just put it on wheels (laughs) you you touched on the boston dynamic stuff earlier tim like the actual robotics that are happening in real life Mm. when it took like three steps up a staircase everybody was like game changer holy shit yeah. i can't believe we actually got the knees to work and you're like what do you mean you got the knees to work how is this thing not doing backflips and like taking over the world it's like uh we basically we, it took us like 15 years to get it to take two steps up you're like what like yeah human body's fucked up man like it's mm. just a, a bunch of bags and blood and bones and shit and we don't really know it how it works. be a big fucking triangle and be done with it but go full on evangelion yeah, yeah. what the fuck is that thing oh god yeah, it, it's a it's a angel, but like a exactly. biblical angel, where it's just a bunch of, bunch of eyes of like spheres and eyes and circles that are just Mobius strips, and it's all fucking terrifying. But I love that when they do that with robots. Like I was saying, when you go out of that scope of like 
oh, it's just a human-shaped robot. It's just like, oh, he's got blue eyes. Or like, oh, it's got slightly different things or whatever. Like, cool, I guess. Even with, like, the replicant stuff in Blade Runner, which I keep coming back to, like, the whole thing is, like, you want to get, like, Rachel where it's in- indistinguishable from humans. And you get to the point, oh, it took a hundred questions on the void cam dev to even tell if she's human. <laughs> like, right. Is that, I mean, is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? Like, that's the whole question from, again, Tyrell playing God and that whole thing. Like, it's fascinating. And then the questions that 2049 brings up of, like, uh, a robot had a baby. <laughs> is that baby half robot, half human? Does that mean that Deckard is definitely human or a replicant? Or does it not confirm that either way? <laughs> who fucking knows and like would that then like push robots past the point of being robots would them being able to reproduce because there are animals that we can crossbreed and that have happened in nature as well due to weird circumstances that are born sterile and they're not their own species because they are born sterile like zebra donkeys and z donks and asses and mules Mm. and all that kind of stuff genetic cul-de-sacs ligers and tions and yeah these genetic cul-de-sacs where you can crossbreed these two things. You can make a hybrid animal, but it is not its own thing. It cannot exist outside of the concept of its parents. And if robots can replicate literally by like essentially like sexual reproduction like we do as humans, or by some like I built a hundred copies of myself and now I can take over the world kind of thing, at what point do we get outside of that and you touched on it in your uh, atlantis pitch matt like going back to the whole golem concept and yes of course that whole thing and and it's such a fascinating concept to me i know i love all this nerdy sci-fi bullshit but like but the films these, these ideas the, the existentialism and the the bigger questions that it asks and aims to answer or even like aim new questions at you one of my favorite films ex machina which i bring up all the time on this show is exactly about that Battlestar Galactica, one of my favorite shows, all about that, indistinguishable from humans, all this kind of stuff. But I, like I said, I find it particularly fascinating when we get something original. We get something like, this is a robot like you've never seen before. And I like it when designers or prop makers or casting directors or whoever it is comes up with a really cool design and original idea that you only really see in that one film. Chitty from Interrun. Uh, for those who don't know, yes. that's, that's the. Uh the tamil indian film about a series of films i should say uh it's not a good design at all it's a person but you know what does weird things yeah (laughs) i think you know exactly with the uh when you have these robots who are kind of functionally identical to humans you know so often that film then or or that story also you know the, the tv whatever becomes then about deception um and becomes about robots tricking humans into accepting them or like or whether the robots can function like undetected in a human society that kind of thing you know we see that with blade runner we see that with uh stuff like the alien series where you have ash and um winona ryder's character whose name i can't remember um like Oh, from Resurrection. Both, from Resurrection, yeah. Kind of both sort of not wanting to admit they're robots for various reasons. And and there's there's a lot of these stories out there. And and again, I think that comes back to 
the class undertones that we sometimes get with these stories of what does it mean if the thing that you've designed to be an underclass can suddenly function indistinguishable from you uh and and it's usually oh well then you should be very afraid because you've been stamping down on these people yeah and you've effectively been replaced the thing that always yeah. amazes me is like we're like oh let's create robots let's create them to do these things to do these tasks to be let's face it slaves um because we just won't we'll, we'll deny them the ability to feel or whatever mm. and um then you get well okay what are they doing they can do your job but so much better right uh hmm. that's that's a it's a fear i have in fact that i'm gonna be made obsolete oh <laughs> you are obsolete you're completely unnecessary like right hmm. we should we should throw ourselves on the machines then and stop the, <laughs> the mechanism um because there's a huge swathe of once you get past the nature of are machines good are machines bad are they the villains are they the heroes are they your friends you get onto the nature of machines wanting to have the next step which is i want to have a child i want to create my own machine and they have the same agonizing questions we have of like oh do i get replaced is that a good thing is it a bad thing and i can't remember which form exactly it is but there are so many conversations of like no not an exact replica of me it has to be a bit different i've learned from humans i've learned from watching evolution and, and all these things that it has to be not an exact clone it has to have different components from the whole it has to be made of multiple different bits so that it will survive and be better than me because we kind of forget our children are supposed to be our replacement that's better than us it's an improvement it isn't genetically speaking but <laughs> it's more of the same shit uh from from a robotic point of view it, it's the idea of you know we get these crises and this this thing we start going oh god yeah because humans don't have that level of programming we have dna and stuff so uh yeah lots lots of things you can talk about with regards to the film concepts and ideas you can go with and that's the thing it's such a spectrum of story potential it has been in literature it has been on film and it continues to be yeah and and just to kind of finish up there when you talk about um you know the ro robots replicating themselves essentially yeah often the body that they're replicating into doesn't matter so much it's the question of the sentience where does the sentience come from how do you make it unique because if they're just putting a copy of themselves into it then there's just two of them suddenly rather than a quote unquote child the ultron vision thing and, yes exactly it's yeah, like how you, you know and then and then you start going into the questions like well how do humans create consciousness there we go like and and then you know where where does the soul come from you know if this thing is sentient and it has a consciousness did we do that uh did we did we like create that what is the process to do that again you know there it's it's um yeah it, it it just showcases like you can take this thing that you know a lot of people go like oh it's a film about robots how silly it's going to be and it's like yeah. no actually it's it can be a window to a huge variety of different stories about you know uh everything from industrial labor disputes to the nature of the soul to mm. stuff like aging like uh, we mentioned robot and frank a couple of times yes, and like that's a really yes. interesting where the robot is is essentially kind of like an assistive living device yeah and mm -hmm. it's you know it's looking at 
yeah kind of aging and how we as a society kind of deal with that mm. how we treat our elderly and, and things yeah i would i would go s- f- one step further and say and this is maybe controversial but every single robot story is a story about us it's once again mm-hmm. us trying to find our place in the world how we fit into it where we go f- from here what we've been about everything just in the microcosm of this other thing and they're really cool. Some of them smash you some in the face. Yeah, we should probably talk about that, right? Let's do it. Specific examples. Today's episode is sponsored by Athletic Greens. You could start taking AG1 because you don't have prep time, you want better gut health, more energy, or just an optimized immune system. Thankfully, it doesn't taste like many other super healthy supplements. With a mild tropical taste, you can actually look forward to in the morning. So what is AG1? With one delicious scoop, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food-sourced superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. This special blend of ingredients supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and aging. All of the things. AG1 is a small microhabit with big benefits, supporting better sleep quality and is cheaper than getting all of the $100 per day supplements separately. So right now is the time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition with just one scoop in a cup of water every single day. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is giving our listeners a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com emerging. That's athleticgreens.com slash emerging to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. This week's episode is also sponsored by Audible. You can go to audibletrial.com slash sequel and get a free month trial and a free audiobook on your boys here at Sequelizers. And you can get hundreds of thousands of audiobooks, guided meditations, podcasts, and various other audio delights by going to Audible because they really do everything. They even have us. And if they have us, what don't they have? That is How the question. How bad can it be? Exactly, exactly. As I've said many times in the show, I've been an Audible subscriber genuinely for like nearly 10 years at this point. Pretty much when it started, I have been reading audio books in their audio format. So consuming books in audio format for a long, long time. And... I love their service. I think it's genuinely fantastic and it is basically second to none in their selection of audio delights. I'm going to come in with a recommendation that basically spoils one of my picks because I listened to this not too long ago, funnily oh. enough. Yeah, teasing something for a little bit later on we'll get into. A lot of people call him the father of robotics in science fiction. We're going to dive back to Isaac Asimov's iRobot. And spoiler alert, we're going to talk about iRobot later on as well <laughs> in, in the second free laws. half of the show. Interestingly enough, the iRobot book is very, very different to the film, which we'll be discussing later on, as I said. It's actually a collection of short stories, but does very much kind of establish a lot of that really early science fiction-y stuff and how robots would then go on to be kind of handled in a lot of science fiction media throughout books and games and tv shows and films and all that kind of stuff asimov as i said we'll get into more detail later on but Asimov really laid down some rules of robotics and some things that have really influenced so many different robots in various different media so 
I really do recommend this version. It's just over nine hours long, so it's a pretty decent length, but not, you know, crazy like 40-hour yeah. fantasy books, which I have listened to before as well. But it's a nice length. It's a it's a good sort of like a few sittings, in my opinion. I got it, got it through it in a couple of work days when I was really head down working on stuff. And uh, it's narrated by William Hope, and he is fantastic. Uh, obviously written by Isaac Asimov, naturally. And yeah, it's really, really good. Well written, well read, well narrated, all that kind of stuff. And is a hearty recommendation for me as a big sci-fi nerd and as a big audiobook fan. And you can get that for free by going to audibletrial.com slash sequel. You can pick up a copy of iRobot or any other robot-themed audiobook or non-robot-themed audiobook of your choice on us. And you get a month's trial of Audible's fantastic service there as well. So you get all the membership books to listen to there while you have that membership there as well. And there's actually some very cool old-school sci-fi stuff included in the membership for free there as well, which you can listen to as many times as you want during that trial month. So like I said, audibletrial.com slash sequel for all your Audible needs. So let's dive into some specific examples, some interesting examples mm-hmm. throughout the history of robots in the movies. And Matthew, I feel it's appropriate we come to you first. It's a film we've talked about a couple of times on the show before because of how integral it is in so many ways to cinema and to science fiction Take it away, Mr. Stogden, with a piece, n- nothing less than a, a legacy piece and of cinematic history. Okay. So, <laughs> so we've brought up this film many times. We have. Uh, and I think for a lot of people, there'll be pe- uh, the, the start of this episode, like, oh, it's about robots. And there'll be a pause and think, Matt's going to talk about Metropolis, isn't he? Yes, he is. <laughs> yes, I am. So, yes, Metropolis is a 1927 German film from by Fritz Lang based on the 1925 novel novel of the same name by Thea von Harbaugh, I want to say. Lang von Harbaugh. Either, either way, point is that it's another one of those books become film. Now, the film itself, and I mentioned this many times before, I love it. I think it's fantastic. It's, it's really cool, silent movie nonsense. Uh, heavily criticized at the time for being remarkably simplistic and uh, very communist in its mindset and blah, 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 blah. But it's it's glorious and it's inspired so many things over the years. Um, it's one, one of the most influential films ever made. Absolutely. Absolutely. It is almost... Uh, well, it's, not, yeah, it's almost 100 years old. It's 95 years old, this movie. Um, and the robot in question is fascinating for multiple reasons. Um, the robot is known as a few things. It's uh, their machine and mensch, or the machine human, um, which also goes by the name Maria, technically, because of the character that it imitates. Uh, I think the official name is Futura, Futura, uh, or Futura, uh, technically. In, in, in the film, it's referred as the robot. There's a few from from the book, she's called Futura. That's yeah, what it is. Yeah. Yes, exactly, yes. Um, but uh, the machine and mensch is one that uh, we go by quite a lot. Now, she. It, it is very much a gynoid, or a gynoid, possibly. I think gynoid would be the correct way for gynecology and things like that. But the idea is that a gynoid is an android that has female form, human female form. It's a fembot, baby, yeah. <laughs> very much so. It literally is. <laughs> um, and it has seemingly one purpose. The design by uh, Walter Schulz-Mittendorf is... I mean, you may look at it and go, oh, it's kind of like C-3PO. It's like, yeah, there's a reason for that. 
uh, C-3PO is kind of inspired by this very golden sort of design. Well, obviously, the illusion of it being called this black and white movie, but um, the, the posters are all very golden looking and stuff. And the implication is there's this woman called Maria. Maria. And she is, uh, in the eyes of certain people, corrupting uh, the heir to this massive uh, corporation who runs this undercity sort of... Uh, production world this just giant melloc as, uh, as it's called the um uh the uh the, the machine that powers everything and the idea is that to to discredit her they create a machine which can impersonate her and besmirch her legacy effectively and it's it's amazing how simple that is in a way that it's just political scandal it's like a woman is trying to tell people to do the right thing. Like, look, these children are starving. They are your brothers. They are your sisters. You must do something. Like, we can't have that. Fucking hell. Create a, a robo woman to look exactly like her. And it's just a very, like, you know, bleep, boop, bleep, bloop machine. And then it goes to a transformation process where it looks exactly like her. But, and it's the same actor who plays it. It's a uh, Briggy Town. And she does a great job of the two, the sort of dual performance, the very innocent, very virtuous Maria and the real, for lack of a better word, slag bag that is <laughs> the robot. Because <laughs> for want of a better phrase, fuck me, Matthew. Because she is literally designed solely as a, 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 a carnal, lusting thing that gyrates in a way that drives men to, to weakness. And it's the way it's filmed is beautiful. It's it's it, it's just eyes upon eyes and she's just dancing and jeering and gyrating and it's and the whole point is it's it's it doesn't i don't think it knows it's doing this but it's very much like yeah men are the fucking worst um and so you're like look at these men they've seen this woman there they're so crippled and this obviously very over the top uh science uh, science fiction silent movie acting so a lot of chest gripping and arms outstretched and oh a woman oh she moves and then she does this wonderful wonderful little character where she winks really slowly with one eye it's it's kind of amazing, um, but the character isn't isn't a character. She is very much a, a, a slave in that she's just created to be this thing that's going to corrupt Maria's image. Right? It's 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 the same as Mecha Godzilla. Um, you know, ruin their image by being. <laughs> you know, not guy. everything's Mecha Godzilla, right, Matthew? Everything is us. Most things are Mecha Godzilla. Most things are Mecha Godzilla. Everything is either Mecha Godzilla or not Mecha Godzilla. That's accurate i'm not wrong you're not wrong if you're necessarily right so basically it's interesting because she doesn't really have a personality per se in terms of like an actual character an arc a drive she is very much this 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 carnal lust device basically to to enthrall men and be like whatever and her story ends in a very abrupt simple way where rotvang the guy the, the actual scientist who creates her his own motivations and bits and pieces come into it but um She's powered and programmed in a way to be a temptress, a succubus, if you will. And as such, the fact that she has this very enticing sexual nature and the way she carries herself, the way she sort of slithers and moves and winks real fucking slowly. It's all like, is that her personality? No, it's her programming. She doesn't have any diet. But it, it, you get the impression she's getting off on it. She's enjoying it. She wants to be this thing. She wants she's to be this bad. She's life. just drawn that way. That, kind of and it's it's fascinating because the design is glorious it's so art deco it's so german expressionism um and the performance is godly and that it's uh brilliant helm in the um 
in in the costume itself again one of a kind sort of thing whereby it's like oh we have things now where you have like um the first robocop costume weighed a fucking ton and you could barely move it and so mm. you know whoever was in it was losing all this weight but then by the end of the shoot they managed to lightweight it up because you know that kind of thing so really rigid really really uncomfortable etc but very pioneering in filmmaking stuff but then when she becomes the full-on human version again it takes on this very snake-like slithering persona it's 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 magnificent and it's as jack said so iconically informative uh inspired a lot of things across iconic influential yeah absolutely absolutely yeah i mean it definitely speaks to mankind with with an emphasis on man tending Mm -hmm. to take any technological innovation and stick our dick in it absolutely Um, and you look at some of the forefronts of like what was that Matt said robotic- about a flashlight earlier? Yeah, <laughs> we don't want to know. Um, you know, you can play it back. Uh, you know, you look at some of the forefronts of like robotic technology, especially when it comes to like replicating like realistic expressions and stuff like that. And it's being done, unfortunately, by the sex doll industry, of course. who are ma- trying to make these, you know, sex robots. And it's like. Oh, okay. This is this is you know it's in the same way that like the all the payments uh, systems for the internet were developed by porn companies. Uh, it's like oh, okay. This is what it takes to get us to push yep. forward the boundaries of science. Is it? We claim to be so civilized and highly evolved, and it's like sex still drives basically everything. We just don't talk about it. Like, oh, great. VHS yep. Beta Max. The only reason one of them won was porn. Yep, porn, porn rules the world. That's what we're learning here, and that, I find it fascinating that, and like you said, a nearly hundred-year-old movie deals with like the gender divide and even like the existential concepts of what's real and what's not, and can mm. I put my dick in that? The big question. <laughs> I think the it's, question it's, that drives humankind forward. It, mm. Mm, well, the, the, there's a thing whereby, as again, Metropolis was slated at the time quite publicly for being far too blunt, far too simplistic, far too straightforward, far too idealistic. And it's like, that's also what fables do. And it's also kind of why these things endure in the first place, because mm. we can watch it and go, yeah, I get it. I mean, I know, obviously, it's the 1920s. It's really over the fucking top. It's really silly in places. It's really uh, heightened and ridiculous. But there's a beautiful simplicity to it that means you can kind of watch it no matter what and go yeah it still endures it still makes sense i get it bunch of people in charge of all these factories are dickheads yeah i think it's a great place to start as well for us because like we said it's one of the earliest if not the earliest example of yeah robots in movies and it's been so influential and so iconic for i, I can't say this stuff 95 years and you said it earlier and it melted my brain every time i say it out loud it melts my brain we're getting to the point now where cinema has been around for a century and movies still feel like a relatively new medium in the grand scheme of things. But mm, yeah. good Lord, the fact that, you know, this is still watchable 95 years later mm-hmm. is just a testament to the longevity of it and how brilliantly crafted it is. And, you know, whether that's Fritz Lang or like you mentioned, some of the other members of the team, like, Mm-hmm. building these amazing sets and these incredible designs and yes everything basically every robot you've ever seen since then has been influenced by maria futura machine and mensch however you want to put it in in various <laughs> ways and kim i joked about austin powers like oh fembots and, yeah. and, and, and kim cattrall obviously in sex and city with their <laughs> with their slow winking if, if metropolis could talk 
they'd have Maria sound like a, a Germanic Kim Cattrall. Lawrence <laughs> <laughs> of my labia. <laughs> <laughs> See, I, I thought the Kim Cattrall reference you were going to go for was mannequin. Oh, oh shit, man. Tim. That's, nah, that's magic. That's Tim. different. <laughs> that's, yeah. She's Egyptian. Who, said, who you know. said robots can't be magic? Me. Ah, okay. Although the Golden Army in Hellboy is magic and robots. Damn! So, bouncing around, Jack, do you want to give us another another option, please? Or another, another choice, a pick? Sure. I'll dive into the one I teased during the ad. So if you are listening on podcast services as normal, you'd have had this kind of teased already. But for the patrons who didn't hear my ad, I'm going to talk about iRobot and dive into a bit of Isaac Asimov via Alex Proyas and those guys (laughs) in the the 2000s. (laughs) Via Converse Trainers. Exactly. And I think I find the iRobot film so interesting. I like it. I don't love it. I think there's a lot of positives and and a fair few negatives. I think Alan Tudyk's performance as Sonny, the central robot character, is spectacular nothing short of absolutely brilliant and i think alan tudyk is incredibly underrated as an actor throughout his career absolutely. he's basically just been brilliant mm-hmm. and just been in like oh he you know he's just like the funniest thing in a knight's tale and the knight's tale is fucking hilarious like you can't believe how he just kind of outshines so many other people in so many other shows like so many people's favorite character in firefly all this kind of stuff but this is alan tudyk is dramatic peak in my opinion or at least the opportunities he's been given in his career he tends to be more comedic and stuff like that and his motion capture performance bringing Sonny to life and as we talked about with the animation episode a couple of weeks ago was it last week whenever it was the recent animation episode the fact that we had motion capture and then you also have the onset performance of him there it's the same technology as Gollum that we talked about in that episode where you had to, he had to do it three different times a full motion capture separately on a motion capture set later on which then matched to his on set performance so they did an original performance which was two takes on set then a separate motion capture to match the on set thing because they were doing separate takes with Will Smith with i think it was a ball on a stick alan <laughs> tudyk in person and absolutely nothing to see like how he would react. Basically, across the board, Alex Proyas and the team were like, he's, he's better when Alan Tudyk is in the room. Surprise, surprise, actor is better when fellow actor is there and he's not just talking <laughs> to a fucking tennis ball on a stick. Who knew you had to film the whole film three times to find that out? <laughs> fucking idiots. But yeah, that's how they made that film. That entire film was shot. Every scene is shot three separate takes at least. That's... Not including flubs, not including that stuff. Intentional three final takes for every single performance from at, from Alan Tudyk through to Will Smith. And basically anyone who's in a scene with Sonny, the robot character played by Tudyk, has to record it three separate times. And that melts my brain how good that looks. The CGI, weirdly enough, still holds up. And I think that ties into the design aspects. And that's kind of what I really want to focus on here is the aesthetic choice the fact that it's called irobot and obviously mm-hmm. they play on that with the lowercase i and it being like he looks like he's been designed by fucking apple like it's the clear white plastic it's all very clean very futuristic but i know they made a conscious decision not to do like flying cars and all that kind of shit in this universe 
They wanted the robotics to be the advanced thing that really separated the world of iRobot from so many other kind of futuristic things that we see. This isn't Blade Runner. This isn't The Matrix. This isn't like dystopian stuff. They are our servants and our tools and all this kind of stuff. And the journey that Sonny goes through, through being framed and Will Smith seems to keep playing these characters of like cops suspicious of minor like minorities for some reason and let's not get into we won't talk about bright because you'll get me talking about bright i'll be here all day fucking bright fairy lives don't matter today etc um but the fact that we kind of get onto why will smith's character the detective um spooner talks about like his distrust of robots and it all ties back into asimov's laws of robotics where you have the kind of establishing things that a robot must do in order to exist comfortably in our society as a as a coexisting with humans basically and i'll lay them out for you if you've not you know you're not aware of this or you've not read our robot or whatever this is like i said legendary sci-fi stuff that's influenced in in a kind of parallel to metropolis it has influenced so many people going forwards this is you know from the 40s and 50s and like the the epicenter of the early sci-fi stuff yeah and it's now even stuff that has got to the point of like there are people who are working on ai who think that these rules are some of the most kind of like elegant ways to actually install like these these directives to put them into actual artificial intelligence actual robots as a way of ensuring that human they are safe around humans and and those kind of things and nothing can go wrong because so much thought has been put into them uh and they've been refined over time and 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 so many films have touched on them and and other science fiction and stuff like that yeah yeah asimov was a genius i know he was along with like Robert Heinlein, Arthur C. Clarke, they were kind of like the big three of the very, very early science fiction kind of stuff and have influenced every, basically every science fiction thing you've watched or read or played in the last 70 years. In some form or another, it's probably influenced by those three people. If there has been a robot since then, again, since Metropolis in the 20s and since the 40s now with, with Asimov, it's influenced by these kind of rules. And as you said, Tim, it's now influencing people who are building actual sophisticated artificial intelligence and robotics in real life. Asimov did such a good job that real life is imitating art and art is imitating life and it's this weird Ouroboros of robotics eating its tail. The the three laws are, and there's actually a fourth one which I'll get into as well, which ties into the film quite nicely as well. The first law is a robot may not injure a human being or through an action allow a human being to come to harm. Cool. Second law, a robot must obey the orders given by human beings except where such orders would conflict with the first law. And this is the key for this. That final bit, except in instances where it conflicts with the first law, is why these things are so beautifully written. Absolutely. Because you could you could just cut that off at a robot must obey the orders given it by human beings. Bang. And be like, well, then you could get it to kill things, then it would break the first law. It's like, except when it conflicts with the first law. And there is a reason they're written in that order, is because it's the priority order of no harm to humans, then obey orders. And then this third one is a robot must protect its own existence as long as such protection does not conflict with the first or second laws. And this is where we get into why robot the movie, mm. in that Sonny has 
the understanding of its own sentience. And it's like, I need to protect myself. And I, but I refuse to harm humans in that process. But he's been accused of murder. So how can a robot have murdered a human? It's broken the laws of robotics. How does this all work? Blah, 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 blah. The extra rule that Asimov added later that he considers like preceding the other thing is kind of an expansion upon the first one, but being kind of broader, is a robot may not harm humanity or by an action allow humanity to come to harm. So humanity there being the wider concept of the human race rather than an individual person. Mm. And as we get into an iRobot, we see that the evil program, I can't remember the name of the evil program, Victoria, I think it is, something like that, Something the like a- that. The AI, like the Skynet equivalent AI controlling robot thing, programs the other ones to be like, well, we're here to save humanity, right? And the only way we save humanity is if we wipe out humanity, because it turns out humans are terrible and they're fucking up the planet. And the real way that we stop any humans coming from harm is by killing humans, because humans kill other humans, you see. So we stop wars by wiping out all the humans. It's a Thanos-y kind of thing, but to the yeah. nth degree. It's a real, like, you know, this is the resolution that will end all wars because you just kill everyone kind of thing. And it's Burn a really down the house to get rid of the spiders. Perfect example, thank you. As, as We've all been there, and we've all wanted to burn down a house, and we've had too many spiders. I know my wife has. And it's this fascinating thing, and I think iRobot, like I said, it doesn't completely nail it for me. I don't love it as much as I could do. But I think it does enough interesting things, and I think the performances, the visual effects and stuff really, really carry it. And considering it's, oh, I hate to say this, getting on 20 years old, I feel very old. It's from 2004, and I'm like, oh, no, it's 2022. <laughs> oh, no, I remember that film coming out. I'm, I'm old. Um, yeah, I'm surprised how well it's aged. It was a very high-budget movie for the time, being over a $100 million production budget. Mm. Because of all the visual was, effects and stuff. I think it was at the time, and it could be even replaced, but at the time, it was Will Smith's highest or biggest paycheck. I think he got yes. 20 million cash for doing it, plus a percentage of the box office. So he Fuck made me. fucking bank off this film. It also made like nearly $400 million at the box office. So yeah, did pretty well at the time. But yeah, I think it does a... The, the design alone, you, there are like entire video essays and and literal written essays about the i think it was like 50 to 60 different iterations of the sunny robot that came through and stuff it's fascinating running into the history of this thing the fact that it ties into the history of robotics in fiction in general i find fascinating and the fact that it all comes back around and it was such a insane chaotic but kind of brilliant lightning in a bottle production for this movie i find so fascinating and sunny is such a great character he is the main character of that movie, whether you like it or not. Sorry, Will Smith, and your $20 million. <laughs> he is, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, Sonny is such a great character, and I think having him be this kind of protagonist in a way that you don't really get that often, you expect the cop to be the main character and going through all the like cyberpunk noir kind of stuff, but it goes in a different direction. You actually have the robot be really kind of the emotional core of it and the the detective is kind of a dickhead a lot of the time but yeah i think if you haven't seen a robot i do recommend it but i think tudic's performance the visual effects all that kind of stuff really tied together to make sunny really stand out to me as a fantastic robot in movie history tim how about you 
What's your first pick? My first pick, I'm going to go with the one that probably the widest uh, number of people have seen. I'm going to go with something from Star Wars. Oh, a Star uh, Wars. All those sentient Star droids, Tim. War. Exactly. All slaves. A, a droid, which they use even for stuff, even though the root word of that is presumably android, and most of them don't look like people. But Welcome uh, to George Lucas, Lucas not knowing how names work. Exactly. Solo, you say. Uh, <laughs> um, anyway, uh, so yeah, I mean, we, we touched on it earlier that Star Wars is a really great universe in terms of just how diverse the designs of the robots are. Um, you have everything from box on wheels and box with legs up to stuff like C-3PO, you have, uh, you know, the droid army, which are, you know, kind of broadly speaking androids, but with a weird bird head kind of looking thing stuffed sure. on top. But the one that I have picked as my particular choice to highlight is BB-8. Which is fascinating. Genuinely the most, fascinating, who, most adorable of the droids, I might say. The most adorable of the droids. A lot of R2 fans are kicking off right now. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's it's interesting for a lot of reasons. Um, I think they did a fantastic job with the design of BB-8. It was designed mostly by uh, kind of J.J. Abrams did the initial sketch and then it was Neil Scanlon, who was one of the special effects artists working on the film, who, who kind of properly put it together. Um, and in fact, the reason that they went with the name BB-8 is because both the B and the 8 basically look like the design of the robot, which for people who've forgotten or haven't seen the film, is it's essentially a kind of little domed, free-moving head sat on top of a ball. And the ball rolls and the head stays on top, moving mm. through some kind of, you know, whatever technology that you want to pretend is existing there. Magnets. Um, magnets and stuff. It's quite the force. Move ball. Yeah um it's a great design it's got this kind of one big camera eye that is expressive but beyond that it's very simple um but through the puppeteers who are working on it they managed to get so much kind of uh personality out of it um and it was a, a whole bunch of people because it BB-8 was a practical prop, as with most of the robots on the, in the original Star Wars, but very few in the prequel trilogy. It was part of their, obviously, kind of design ethos of, okay, we're going to go back to practical effects for this new trilogy. We know people like that. We know that it looks better for longer. You know, we, we can look at the prequel trilogy and already see where the CGI kind of seams are showing. Um, and BB-8 was almost entirely a puppet uh, in, in kind of pretty much every shot. Uh, there were, I think there were seven different puppets designed. Most of them were kind of operated with this kind of uh, sort of pin uh, stick configuration going on yeah. that allowed the ball an, to roll along. An old and classic lawnmower like... that just crushes things. <laughs> yeah. 
uh, and actually look like it was just kind of rolling along um, in real life. I mean, that it basically was. Um, you had puppeteers, uh, Dave Chapman and Brian Herring, I think, were the kind of the primary ones with this this kind of rod puppet. And then there were various other designs for kind of close-up elements and stuff, and even some that had like remote control elements uh, as well. I find it fascinating. I remember when it came out, and Abrams and the team, like you said, Neil Scanlon and the puppeteers and stuff, were talking about BBA is real. Like he's on set; it's an actual thing. And they were like, "Yeah, but it can't. Like that—that's not how balls work." Like, no, 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 it's real. We have built yeah. this thing, and it actually rolls around. Grant, sure, there are CGI parts to it, obviously, but mm. this is a real practical effect, and people straight up did not believe them until they saw like behind the scenes stuff. Because Abrams was doing that whole like teasing behind the scenes thing. I don't know if you guys remember that really mm. oh, yeah, pre Force Awakens stuff, where it's like, oh my god, there's an alien behind him. What species of alien is that? And all the Star Wars <laughs> nerds are freaking out, like, that means he must be on this planet in this sector. Does that mean we're gonna get the guy from one of the books and the comics? And the... I, I say that as a person who has done that in the past, but you know, oh, absolutely, <laughs> yeah. Um, but there was the moment where we're like. I mean, sure, whatever. It's just like a fucking CGI ball. And they're like, no, mm. no, it's real. So the fact that they made it work physically and practically still melts my brain now as a person with a physics degree. Didn't they kind of had more problems with R2-D2 and The Force Awakens than they did BB-8? Yes, they, they did. They try to figure yes. out how to make it work. I was like, what do you mean? <laughs> doing this thing for like fucking 30 or 15, 80 yeah. years. Yeah, nearly 50 mm. years. Yeah. Yeah. And... um. And BB-8 is a is an astromech droid like uh, R2D2 was, uh, where the purpose is that essentially they they kind of repair they 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 operate some parts of a ship's subsystems and kind of repair it while it's going. And one of my favorite, I think it's in Last Jedi. I really hope it is because if I'd hate to praise something in Rise of Skywalker, don't you dare. Um, <laughs> is when you actually see BB-8 like doing the I'll work of the doing system. the repairs. Yeah, That's Last Jedi. Yeah. Okay, yeah, I thought it would be a I'm Ryan quite Johnson convinced thing. it's when uh, they're trying to get that super turbo boost so that Poe can fly straight at that uh, uh, big cruiser at the start. Yes, yeah, yeah, it's right it to use his face. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yes, and so you actually get to see for the first time like what an astromech droid does inside the ship, and it's you get all these little articulated arms that come out of BBA opening up these kind of panels that are on this the, the ball section. Um, I think Scanland has described uh, BBA as a Swiss Army knife that shouldn't be trusted. Um, <laughs> Brilliant, and uh, yeah, and so seeing the kind of the functionality of it as well as just this iconic design and. It really does, because it's such a practical prop, it really does feel like something that you could have just in your house moving around. You know, it's... it's Great uh, merchandise, right? Uh, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you look at stuff like, you know, we mentioned earlier, like Roombas and things like that. It doesn't feel a million miles away from what we actually have now. So I'm so glad you picked out that moment where BB repairs... Pose. It's the beginning of Last Jedi. You're totally right. It's like the opening scene mm. where he gets hit and BB-8 goes and repairs stuff. There is an infamous, well now infamous, uh, mm. post from about six months ago on mm. the Wikipedia like edits and forums because mm. of, of course, Wikipedia <laughs> for those of you who hadn't already guessed 
is the Wikipedia of Star Wars. It's the, it's the fandom site for Star Wars. It's the Star mm-hmm. Wars wiki. Um, there is a guy basically complaining about how unrealistic BB-8 going and repairing the things is because he's got an engineering and elect- electrical engineering degree, and a lot of the damage you see is actually done to resistors, and they're the things that like restrict the flow of electricity. So a lot of the welding stuff he was doing doesn't actually make sense, and all of the replies are shut up at Star Wars. There it is. <laughs> that, that's not how spaceships fly. That's not how light works. Shut yep. the fuck up. It's Star Wars. It's magic. It's space wizards. Stop trying to add proper physics-y stuff. And, and that comes back to like, this is the new generation's R2-D2, right? Because the astromech aspect of it, you have it tied to the cool spaceship, tied to the cool character, which they completely fucked up in Love and Rise of Skywalker. <laughs> <laughs> Poe Dameron is such a cool character, and he is this weird, like, Luke meets Han mashup kind of mm. thing, ignoring the fact that Oscar Isaac is one of the coolest actors around of the last decade or so. Mm-hmm. And the fact that BB 8 goes on the Millennium Falcon and hangs out with those crew and then comes back to Poe again. And you have this lovely little kind of like dynamic and relationship between the two that really mirrors Luke and R2 from the original trilogy. So I remember so many kids when that remote control BB-8 toy came out, losing their fucking minds and being able to get your little thing and just drive mm-hmm. your little BB-8 around on your bedroom floor or whatever. I remember that was the hottest shit for that Christmas was all the kids buying remote control BB-8s and every you know gadget and tech store and all that kind of stuff, all the toy stores mm-hmm. being completely sold out of little remote control BB-8s. And it's such a cool design. It's such a cool idea. It's such mm. a as as much as Abrams. Uh, we've talked about Star Wars extensively on the show. Just retreads so much of the stuff from the original trilogy in in negative mm. ways. I like this twist on the astromech droid that you turn it into a ball. You give it a different personality. It feels different enough from R two D two that it feels fresh. Mm-hmm. And like we said, doing it practically and all that kind of stuff just adds that nice little bit of legacy there as well. I think makes BB-8 really stand out in a lot of the nostalgia wankery that Abrams mm. was guilty of doing in the modern trilogy. Mm. Yeah, and especially given that for a lot of the first film, BB-8 is kind of the the thing that everyone's chasing after. The MacGuffin. The MacGuffin, there we go. Uh, BB-8 is kind of like the MacGuffin of that film. Like, There's a lot of people like chasing after uh, what BB-8's got because it's the map to Luke Skywalker and Droids it's past... And yeah, droids of droids with plans. It's passed from one person to the other. You have to give it that distinctive design so people can instantly look at a screen and go like, "Where's the little ball rolling around?" Because that's what, I know that's important. Um, yeah, such Absolutely. a such a clever design and and such a yeah, it feels like it belongs in the universe, but it's not too similar that it feels like it's just aping what it's become before. It has its own presence, its own personality. Uh, yeah, I agree with you, Tim. Great it, show. Exactly. I know a lot of artists yeah. to be pissed off, but also. Do one. <laughs> Matt, we're back to you. It's the 1950s! So, 1951. I've gone from 1927 to 1951. Uh, a film I genuinely love the shit out of. And that is The Day the Earth Stood Still. Yeah! I, I, another iconic, really important, and depressingly still very prevalent movie. Um, so, for those who don't know, The, the Day the Earth Stood Still. It's post-World War II, not that far off, and a space, a literal flying saucer 
lands on the White House lawn, essentially. And two figures step out. One is Klaatu. Uh, and he is an alien. And he represents this planetary body, like a sort of, uh, what do they call it? The Interplanetary Confederation or something like that. And they're saying, hey, everybody, do you want to join us? Your Earth, you know, you, you might want to do it with some conditions. And of course, classically, we're like, oh, God, shoot it. <laughs> and th- this obviously is made, uh, this goes on a whole adventure where Klaatu goes around, has to talk to this little boy and understands life about uh, how, how difficult it is on Earth and how the wars had happened and tries to understand humans, etc. But Klaatu is just an alien dude. It's not Klaatu I'm talking about. It's Gort. Gort is the important one. fucking Gort. Yeah. Gort, Gort was, is based, again, this is again classic, I think 1940, maybe, thereabouts, somewhere in the 40s. There's a short story, uh, I want to say called Farewell to My Master, Farewell to The Master, maybe. Farewell to The um, Master, yeah. The Master, yeah. yeah, there you go. And Gort had a different name, I think it was Gnut or Nut, something like that, or Gnut, who knows. And it was a very different but similar oh, sort of eight-foot machine. Um, down somewhere. Uh, oh, really? Gnut, yeah, Gnut, yeah. something like that, yeah. Something like, like, yeah. King, like King Knut from King Knut. The, the olden times. Tell them the sea to get back where it came from. Like an idiot. Um, but <laughs> Gort is basically an eight-foot, a single seamless bit of metal. I think they call it like a flexible flexible metal, effectively. And it's portrayed in the film by Locke Martin, who's like a fucking seven-foot-seven dude. Uh, and it's just g- giant man in pants, metal pants, um, with a face that's like a Zaku from f- fucking um, uh, Gundam. Uh, in that it is a sort of space helmet, but very um, Daft Punk. And has a single sort of slit where the eyes are and one beam in it. And that's like an eyeball. It's great. And it is interesting how it's introduced. Now, I wanted to highlight this one for multiple reasons, other than it's iconic, it's very important, and so on and so forth. But also because Gort isn't what we think of him. So I, we've, got, we've got Maria, the Maschinenmensch, whatever you want to call that character, who is a creature of pure lust that is designed to corrupt man. Okay? That's, that's her sole purpose. She doesn't have the Asimov laws. She's there to fuck shit up. I wink <laughs> at you while she's doing it. Uh, Gort, however... <sighs> Gort is introduced as a cop, um, basically. It's like, yeah, this is like a police force. And it's like, is it? It's like, yeah, he protects me. Oh, so he's like a bodyguard. Yeah, what does that mean? He'll incinerate your entire fucking planet. What? <laughs> It's like walking around with a nuclear deterrent, literally. And Gort is fascinating because when Klaatu goes missing, he sort of just stands there. He doesn't say anything. And he's powering up to basically wipe everything out. Uh, and everyone comes up to him, the whole, like, he's got this very focused laser beam comes out of his eye socket, as it were. And it, it could be hyper-focused to a very small area, a very large thing, tanks and guns, oh my god, that kind of thing. It's, it just vaporizes things. But it can be put in a wider spectrum to be, you know, much more dangerous because that's the whole point. They are the they are the defense force that goes with these these ambassadors throughout mm. space. And, and Gore is basically like a statue for most of the film. He stands yeah. still outside yeah. his ship, waiting. Yeah, that's it. Um, but the implication of it again, this is a creature. This is a sort of fort. It's it has sentience. In I think in the original book, there's the idea of actually Klaatu is. Uh, in fact, beholden to the robot. Yes, um, Gort is the master, essentially yes. in the in that in that exactly. Phrase. Yeah, mm. and the idea that Klaatu, uh, the, the I mean, very famous. If you if the other stuff, I don't really think I like this. Do you like um, 
do you like Sam Raimi stuff? It's like, sure. <laughs> do you like Evil Dead? Yeah. Do you remember the phrase Klaatu Barada? <laughs> um, Klaatu Barada Nikto is from The Day the Earth Stood Still. It is the phrase you use to deactivate Gort. So he powers down. Basically, they're like, Klaatu's fine, mate. Don't worry about it. He's on his way. He's the guy's Jesus, basically. Um, but it's interesting because Gort is... Uh, Design-wise, again, very, very, very 1950s, very 1940s, very, you know, iconic, uh, streamlined, modern, coming out of, of Art Deco, a next step evolution from the very panel-lined machine and mensch to something very smooth and slick, you know, like getting cars very, very um, angular and boxy in the 20s and 30s to get these really long, slick, beautiful sort of 50s design you know the angular buildings become curved buildings it's like you know mm. you always get to the next stage and you get brutalist architecture in the 60s and 70s being no it needs to be functional on concrete and everything looks like a fucking photocopier um but that's what gore is he is that kind of product of his time and i i kind of love it because as i say it is it's far too op it's far too powerful it doesn't <laughs> have it has programming of the most simple nature protect the person you're going with it's like a really big dumb kid who's like make sure you look after your brother yeah all right <laughs> it's like what happens if they don't get I must smash every motherfucker in this park it's like oh shit <laughs> what we won't talk about is the horrendous 2008 remake because that court is not a robot it's a bunch no, of nano machines and stuff yeah now that doesn't I've, count before you go I, like oh actually the thing we can't reeves blah blah yeah. Not a fucking robots. It's a swarm of nano machines. Yeah. So I no. was very, very frustrated with the remake of uh, the Day oh, Still because it ain't good. But no. uh, I remember Keanu Reeves saying how he fought to get the words Klaatu Barada Nikto into the movie. He did. Yeah. And even then, they fucking distorted the shit out of it so you can barely hear him say it. Um, but more importantly, I remember watching the film and thinking the, the message changed from war is bad because, by the way, the way the, the film ends... Um, Klaatu's been taken back into the ship and Gort's like, alright, we're gonna go now. And Klaatu gives the best, the best fucking speech as he leaves. And it's like, listen, you dumb fucks. There is a whole you, universe you of people. You don't sort the shit out. Exactly. If mm -hmm. you don't get your shit together, we will come back and fucking sort you out. Alright? Enough. We can't let you bring your war into space. And it's like, it's the Dr. Manhattan. All these We have so many ideas of these superior beings coming down and saying, knock it the fuck off. You're mm -hmm. doing something wrong. And they, what's it, they always say, like, a boomer generation thing, oh, the only thing you can stand to a bully is a bully. Wrong. The only thing that stands to a bully is an adult saying, what are you doing? Mm -hmm. Don't do that. Um, but the point I'm trying to make is that when they announced the sequel, sorry, the sequel, the, the, the remake, I wanted it to be a sequel. I wanted it to be literally coming back and saying, we told you. And he said, mm. we did. We stopped. We, we haven't we've done minor conflicts, but there's no, been no major war. Haven't had a world war. It's like, yeah, but you started burning fuel more than ever. This planet is right. Because then the message of the day they're still the remake um, was about, um, I think the line from Keanu Reeves is, if you survive, the Earth dies. But if you die, the Earth survives. And this planet, there are so few out there that can harvest life and just, you know, be a good uh, mm. uh, op optimum Goldilocks, as they think NASA calls it, the Goldilocks uh, uh, situation, as it were. But the point the Goldilocks is, Goldilocks zone. Is zone. The area thank you. That's the word, yes. star where life is habitable. Exactly. Yep. There's so few of those that it can't be wasted by us being pricks. And I love the idea that this this would be a sequel that comes back and said, 
yeah, okay, maybe you're having some wars or conflicts that are frustrating and it's really bad, but, you know, you've gone 10 times worse now because you're ki literally killing this planet and we told you not to do it and then have all this thing come back in its evolved form and Gort is this new thing. I'd be fascinated with that, but instead, it's just a very meh remake and the original is still, is still so goddamn good. It's a, it's a great classic 50s black and white movie. Really heavy on the post-war fears. The design's great. The, the sim again, simple theological discussions about, you know, uh, what it means to be human, what it means to be... And like, oh, we should wipe out this planet. They're all awful. And then he goes off and hangs out with this woman and her kid and a scientist and goes, well, maybe they're not all bad, but your leaders need to fucking sort it out. And it's like, mm -hmm. oh, this film's 70 years old and it's still... Oh, mm -hmm. my God. So, yeah, uh, that's, my, that's my choice number two. And by the way, my choice number three... Still not going to leave that century, I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> Jack, what's your second pick? Well, we touched on a lot of different types of mostly mechanical robots in, in like very stoic, very robotic kind of ways. I'm going to talk about a, a wider discussion here. Obviously, we kind of touched on a couple of them already, but focus on one of these specifically of the synthetics and robots and androids whatever you want to call them they go under various different names mm -hmm. in the alien franchise ah. we already mentioned david we already mentioned walter they're the early uh, models in the universe don't get me started it's a very star wars prequely thing of the earlier models are much more advanced than later models blah blah, <laughs> blah 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 historically in real life let's go back to the first one we actually see an alien i want to talk about ash because mm -hmm. I remember that blowing my mind as a not as a kid, but as a as a younger Absolutely. man watching mm -hmm. Alien for the first time. And first of all, Alien obviously a fucking masterpiece. The fact that Ash is there the whole time as this kind of sleeper agent, and that has become again the influence and such a trope now that you see like one of you is not what you appear to be, and all this kind of mm -hmm. stuff. Even, like, the final moments with, like, Ash's head and him all, like, covered in the goop and, like, <laughs> Ian Holm, like, burbling through all the, all the like, weird, squishy, entraily stuff that's still robotic -y weirdness. Yeah. Milk noodles. The milk noodles. Thank you, Matthew. It's fascinating, like, how... Oh, it kind of reminds me of the thing, ironically enough, obviously three years before mm. the thing in 1979... But they're kind of like body horror of it all. And the design of these androids, these synthetics, whatever you want to call them, again, they they flip flack and back and forth. And synth is used as like a goddamn synth. We got to deal with these like derogatory term kind of thing. The fact that they went out of their way to make these like they're not like made of brittle metal or like. Or, or like the opposite of Gort, basically, where it's just this like seamless, complete statue that you would never mistake for a man. Ash is squishy, but also mechanical somehow, and it's all these like lubricating fluids and air sacs and all kinds of stuff. Stuff that kind of looks like organs, but also mechanical at the same time. The design mm. is so cool and so interesting to me. And that's both in-universe and the fact that, you know, the Whale Newtonic Corporation went in that direction for their androids. And from the actual production standpoint and 
the props and all that kind of stuff and the design that they had with Ian Home as Ash and then of course going on to see Bishop in Aliens as well it's so fascinating to me that they they feel so different to so many other robotic characters in science fiction and obviously mm. like I said inspired so many going forwards as well I know uh plot, plot twist or it's a bit of a spoiler for the live stream I did recently with Modern Escapism we played the Alien RPG and there was a moment where one of the player characters is revealed as an android and mm-hmm. Not only did none of us know that going in, they didn't know until we started the live stream and your hand each of us is like handed like a personal mission card, like an, mm. an agenda card. And then we're all given like, you gotta get out of here no matter what, fuck the rest of them, or protect everyone at all costs, or grab the alien eggs and make sure you get as many as possible. And one of them was just ha- one of us was just handed you are not who you think you are, you are an android, here you go. And we're like, What the fuck? <laughs> and we had that moment where that person is wounded and the white stuff sprays on the wall and gadget to his credit as a dm was like and the white stuff sprays on all the wall go what the fuck <laughs> um, yeah by the time this episode comes out that should be up on youtube so go and check out modern escapism me and the guys from modern escapism their podcast is fantastic anyway i recommend their dnd podcast and their main podcast but yeah had a lot of fun there and diving back into that world back into alien rpg which i fucking love I've got the rule book here for Matt and Tim to to show yeah. off. The visual setup um, on on the Monoscapism was really good. Uh, dancing back and forth between the images of characters speaking, it was just it's a really good visual treat, as long as I yeah. Yeah, and and the big reveal there, so it it very much was basically a play on the plot of Alien, the first one, and like oh, there's one alien loose, and one of us is an android, and working for the corporation, all that kind of stuff. But the way the synths are used in the Alien franchise. Ignoring a covenant in Prometheus and how fucking weird they are. <laughs> the way Ash Bishop, uh, you mentioned Winona Ryder's character called him earlier on, like mm. these advanced synthetic humanoids that are, for all intents and purposes, human. But then when Ash dies later, he's uploaded as an AI consciousness and like transcends his body. And this whole thing is such a fascinating conversation about how to design a robot to look and feel different and Mm. there are so many iconic and cool moments for them like the moment when ash turns on ripley and like fights her and just tries to choke her to death with a rolled up piece of newspaper brilliant yeah of of all the things i mean like i can kill somebody with a fucking newspaper yeah that's fucking terrifying i don't know why but that like uh, i mean it's all classic alien isn't it it's still the the whole phallic symbols in your mouth Every, everything shit, is yeah. penetration yeah in, in alien yeah it, that i never thought i'd be terrified of a rolled up newspaper in the way that i am when ash is wielding it and even when they're like again going back to the thing another one of my favorite sci-fi horror movies when they whack ash's head off and it's like this big dangling thing of like yeah it look <laughs> there is still a moment where you're like wait what the fuck is it is that biological is that mechanical is it biomechanical like what the fuck is going on here because it's not established until that point so you're like i don't know what i'm processing here in the same way with the aliens so like i don't know what i'm processing here either nope mm. it's all so mysterious and obviously me diving into the alien rpg i've dived into a lot of the lore hello it's me i mm-hmm. do a lot of research and get lost in all the lore and nerdy shit going into like the history of the synthetics in that universe and how they're developed and like like we're talking about, like, why would you choose to make 
them look like humans it's all ties into Wayland's god complex he specifically goes out of his way to make them look like humans and that's when Walter and David come in in Prometheus and Covenant but at the way they designed Ash in particular thinking about how you know it's a mechanical replica of the human body but like souped up he's super fast super strong super smart can do maths can do you know run marathons can lift really heavy things but he's still squishy and i find that so fascinating that 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 (laughs) vision is not terminated with like a big metal skeleton or anything it's all these like basically what we are just a big bag of goo wobbling about hoping for the best <laughs> and barely, barely staying up on two feet and they like they even talk about like oh yeah those models were a bit jittery or, or janky or whatever it is because ian home had was like trying to act robotic in certain scenes and not in other mm. scenes so he's a bit more janky in other scenes to like <laughs> clue clue in the audience a little bit yeah, it's great. and then yeah. when he's running on the treadmill it's like and super like super duper fast it's, it's such an interesting design to me and like i said so influential going forward over the last 40 years or so um yeah i think a lot of people, people think saying... of bishop beforehand but i think ash really kind of defined this kind mm. of mm-hmm. this kind of androidy robotic type thing for me in so many different ways yeah for all the bishop fans it'd be nice to reference bishop but you can't have him without ash because the whole point of bishop's character is that ripley doesn't trust him because yeah. of their experience with ash and it's you don't, you never really know whether he's going to be another ash or not so he literally lives in the shadow of that character because the performance and the uh, and the presence is such an important and integral one yep and what did, what did avp do make him the guy that looks like the other guy <laughs> like wait a minute what so yutani developed Shut the up. thing like that but no. It's not canon. Don't worry. We ignore that stuff. Hoof it Alien masterpiece. Aliens is a masterpiece. Ash and Bishop are great. <laughs> Go watch Modern Escapism. Uh, Tim, how about you? On to your next pick, sir. Well, I'm going to take us from our most indistinguishable from humans to one of our furthest from humans. I am going to talk about a little film called Interstellar uh, and some robots called Tars and Case. Mm-hmm. This is what I was hinting at earlier on with this. I yeah. find this choice of design so fascinating from Nolan and his team. Agreed. Yeah, and I, I'm not a huge fan of Interstellar. Um, Me neither, I saw it, Tim. Same. I saw it in cinema and I felt that was enough, but I loved Tars and Case. They're, it's such a unique design. For people who haven't seen it, it's essentially... A man-sized box made of four kind of articulated rectangles of steel. Um, yeah. It's got uh, a screen at the top, and it's it's kind of hard to describe because uh, it's so simple. Um, it's just it's a big box that different parts of it move. Yeah, that's literally it's it's a monolith, isn't it, with some com- some movable components. Yeah. But it can use them to like walk forward in a kind of uh, sort of a weird ape-like walk, uh, articulating kind of the the two on the out uh, two rectangles on the outside more than the two on the middle. It can kind of speed up and go into this uh, almost like wheel-like configuration, um, and it has these kind of modular uh, 
almost like a kind of like a fractal design sense to it where it has these four primary rectangles that form it kind of legs i guess would be the best way to describe them i I love your descriptions of this tim because it is like we said the design is so inhuman and so far Mm. away from like you said what we were just talking about with ash and even going back to maria in metropolis Mm. It, it's a but it's a bunch of rectangles that just kind of spin yeah. and stuff and you're like i remember seeing it run swim for yeah, yeah. frames yeah. on the planet for the first time and it just going just motoring past me like is that just like yeah. spinning its leg tangles rectangle leg tangles <laughs> how does that work it, yeah it's such yeah. a unique weird design that is mm. so minimalist and even yeah. watching it move, despite its simplicity, it's incredibly complex and confusing to watch in, in a good way that makes it engaging for the viewer. Yeah, and it can have these parts that then fold out and become these arms, sort of, to manipulate things and lift things up, so it has this pr- kind of practical use. But for the most time, it's it's just this kind of, like like Matt said, it's a monolith uh, the the first time we see it, it's essentially it trying to intimidate Matthew McConaughey. It's like they're they're meant to be these old military units, and it has that kind of gruff marine sense to it. But we also we literally see characters tinkering with the personality settings of them, where it has a sense of humor, but it's got a sense of humor that you can scale from you know like a hundred to one uh, to zero mm-hmm. uh, and decide how. You know how much of a smartass do you want this robot to be? There's a great moment where he's like, "Oh, let's set humor at 70. and it goes like, "Accepted." Beginning self-destruct sequence is like, "Okay, sixty-five. Knock, knock. You want to go for fifty? Uh, and um, <laughs> yeah, it's such such an absolutely unique design. Again, like BB-8, it was something that was done. A, a remarkable amount of it is done practically. Um, it was designed by uh, Nathan Crowley, who was the production designer on it, uh, kind of working with, with Paul Frack, uh, Franklin uh, and with Scott Fisher, who were both kind of special effects, visual effects people working on the practical and the, and the digital side of things. And they actually made these units, these these huge yeah. clunking things, and they were puppeted around by Bill Irwin, who is the, the actor who does the voice for them. Um, he's a, a really great underrated actor, actually. Um, and he was like puppeting the walk around of these of these robots in a lot of these scenes. And obviously then there's digital work done to remove him, to remove, you know, little uh, extra bits and to put in, you know, especially when it's moving really fast and doing the spinning wheel or having these articulated parts come out. But when it's just kind of walking around and talking to Matthew McConaughey or or the other characters, it's actually a physical robot there on set, which in some ways it's kind of even stranger than BB-8 because it just looks like this thing, as much as it's easy, it's just a big box. You're also like, but how does it move? Like, surely there must be some CGI trickery going on here. It's like, no, we just we just made it. Yeah, yeah. it's crazy. Yeah. It's this massive, like, 200-pound hydraulic puppet, basically. And like you said, Tim, you have the guys on the set there literally driving this six-and-a-half-foot-tall box around. It's like, how? Why? That's mad. It's incredible how it works. And in the original script, so like the early 2008 version, I think Jonathan Nolan mm. and Christopher Nolan worked on together, 
they were far more humanoid originally. Yeah. And when they came to talking to, as you mentioned, like the production design and their team and stuff like that, they said like, I mean, when else are we going to get a massive budget like this to kind of do something interesting and do something unique? Mm. We want to push the boundaries. And from what I understand, Nolan and his team were like, I mean, we trust you guys. Like, what did you have in mind? And they came up with a few different concepts. And there was this one where it's, uh, it's again, I'm going to try and describe a bunch of rectangles. It's it, it's it's Tars slash Case standing up basically with the three slanted in the middle and the two like standing up on either side, mm. and he was like, "What's that?" It was like, "That's it walking," and they basically had like a a little animation of it moving, and Nolan was like, "I have never seen anything like that before. I need that in my movie." And I was like, Absolutely. "Yeah." They that there was lots of high fives of like. We just told Christopher Nolan how we're going to design his robots, and he said, fuck yeah, in the most Christopher Nolan way. Every designer wants your director or producer to say, go fucking buck wild, carte blanche, give me four or five ideas, and you Mm. go for the one you think, they're never going to go for this. And the same that's fantastic. So many million dollars, do what you like. Mm. Absolutely. (laughs) And the thing is, it's like like a phone went through a shredder and came out uh, as an insanely jacked Marine. And you're like, what? It's like, yeah, it's carved into pieces, and it comes out, and it's like, I'll fucking kill you. It's like, uh, yes. And do you know how, do you know my weak points? You, you're an oblong. Exactly. I don't have yeah. any. <laughs> you must have seams and gears. Good luck finding him while I'm crushing you to death. It's like, I'm just going to have to fall on you, and you'll die. It's like, yeah, yeah this thing's quite brilliant. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah. It's a, it's a great it's, choice, Tim. It's, it's like if your fridge could get angry and then charge at you. <laughs> yeah. You know? And it's so in line completely with Christopher Nolan's kind of like aesthetic and his sense as a filmmaker. It so lines up with that perfectly well. And he's a, a person who loves to do things practically. And so you've got to, you, you know, you can imagine them thinking like, okay, we, we don't want to use too much CGI. So we're basically, we've either got like a person in a suit, but that's kind of been done over and over as, as, as to how to make a robot. Or we've got some kind of puppet what's the weirdest looking puppet you can come up with? It's like, okay, yeah. Um, so yeah, even though Interstellar is not a film I'm particularly a fan of, the design for Case and, and Tars and all the other robots that appear in it is so distinctive that it instantly like stuck in my mind as like, you're going to talk about robots, like, because there's there's so many examples out there of just your straight up humanoid robots marching around from a practical, you know, from a filmmaking point of view, that's the simple thing to do. And this was, like we said, unlike anything we've seen before. And Tars is easily one of the best characters in that film. Yeah. Yeah, easily. What a weird coincidence that Christopher Nolan makes one of his most human characters a fucking robot. (laughs) Not not known for his emotional depth in his movies, is he? Bless him. Uh, A book I would really recommend if you're looking to get into the science of Interstellar is the book The Science of Interstellar by Kip Thorne, (laughs) who is is a theoretical physicist and uh, Nobel Laureate award winning Mm. uh, writer and physicist. Uh, So yeah, don't particularly like Interstellar, don't like that it gets all wibbly wobbly timey wimey, love transcends time bollocks but... Fuck that noise. The fact that they did like the incredible accurate models of black holes and the designs for tars and case and all the planetary stuff that they did and the time dilation ideas it's full of incredible like scientific basis for so many things 
around it that yeah i highly recommend it if you do want to dive into that that is a fantastic way to do it and go into the science of black holes how those robots work how the time dilation works all that kind of stuff it's taking real life physics applying it to that fictional way and how that would translate in real life and it's a really interesting read despite me not particularly liking that movie <laughs> <laughs> matt we're back round to you for your final pick back to the 20th century and forward to the 23rd or oh. 22nd 24th i don't know 24th century it's tr- 2300s which means it's 24th century that doesn't fucking matter po- point is uh it's star trek so <laughs> this uh rather than going from um uh novels being sort of uh adapted into film we're now going from tv adapted into film with a character who very fascinating for me as a kid um the original series star trek one of the big talking points was spock is a vulcan he is an alien who doesn't feel emotion they 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 actively close themselves off to it Ooh, interesting so what's going to make this next generation show started by next generation there still be obviously these characters the alien characters are there what what are we going to do on there that's the next equivalent what's our what's our character who's going to be this um uh this this find your humanity thing right and it's Lieutenant Commander Data, uh, played by Brent Spiner. I, I don't think enough people uh, are aware or appreciate how much the next generation, it's like, oh yeah, obviously Picard, obviously like, you know, Riker's great, and Worf's real fun, and you know, oh, you know, there's an interesting episode with, um, with Gates McFadden playing the Doctor. Yeah, 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 it's a Crusher episode. No, no, no. It's the fucking Data show. It's, mm-hmm. it's data becoming human and everyone's yeah. saying why would you want to become human all the all the you know the sentient beings saying like oh should you why would you want to strive <laughs> to be that because it's, like, it's my main programming it's like yeah but why and i'm saying because it's what i want the first the, the second episode is about him getting his fuck on um because <laughs> that was the uh the ship getting uh hit by some horny rays and he screws the tash- lieutenant tashi um and hey, we've, we've all been there yeah and then obviously he gets to um, first contact, um, and again he's he's the closest he comes to being human via the Borg. Now the Borg, not robots. The Borg cyborgs. are androids. Cyborgs, thank you. Yes, exactly. If I say androids, whereas Data Data is an android. Absolutely android. He is purely synthetic. He mm. is he is an imitation of man created in the literal image of um, Doctor Sung, his creator, uh, with his um, multiple fucking annoying brothers. Um, <laughs> you've got um, obviously you know Law fucking Famously great Law yeah. is amazingly fun um, great dual performance from uh, from Spiner there where he's like I'm the crazy wacky funny version I got a bit of personality and you know I, a sense of humour and stuff it's like oh I don't really understand why I would have that and then you've got B4 who is stupid fuck B4 yep. he's B4 like the is a prototype one right he's a backup for us to get him later and film a bullshit cop out um, and again, Data has a whole thing in the, ser- the TV series about um, having children and creating his own daughter, basically. There are a few different versions, technically, now thanks to more TV stuff, but we're talking about films specifically. And Star Trek Picard and Generations and Nemesis are Data. Insurrection, less so, because Insurrection's a big pile of shit. But the idea that Data very boldly says, there's this one thing I've been sort of resisting for a long time, it's this emotion chip. That's the one thing of his positronic net and all those sort of things and his special brain. 
the one thing he can't that sort of separates him and there's a beautiful mm. moment in first contact where he's like going through these emotions for the first time he's feeling fear and anxiety and picard says data maybe you want to turn your emotionship off and he's done sir and he's data there are times i envy you um and it's fascinating because data is is an interesting look at who we are and you know we talk about like the machines i've done the evolution of right so we got uh the machine and mensch and that is very much a device created by humans to uh corrupt the image of someone else she is a tool for corruption and uh lurid filth then you have um gort who is an alien creation but in human form technically humanoid form and he is a cop who just is there to blow the shit out of everything again both of them are effectively tools they don't have personalities they don't have presence they don't have for lack of a better word soul um data is not that data is constantly striving to not only better himself but be more like us and again every step of his learning and journey that, that like for example first contact again when picard is touching uh zeph from cochran's uh ship the first warp drive ship and he says and data is like asking questions like a child does it make it any more real? It's like, yes. And he touched it and says, it's no more real than I did five minutes ago. It's like, yeah, but to be human means this. And it's like, and even though Data is trying to become human, even though it's, a, 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 again, a beautiful fucking line in First Contact, you are an imperfect being created by an imperfect being. Why would you strive for them when you can be so much more? And it's like, mm. Data, why, why are you doing this? Um, and I, I love his, his, dilemmas his drama the fact that in 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 generations geordie gets basically kidnapped and he is literally struck with fear and says mm. i don't want to do this anymore you'll have to just you know remove me from service because i can't do this and the emotional psychological places that daisy goes as a character it's beyond what we've seen in a very iconic way in the machine mensch it's beyond what we see in gort it's something of this is a this is a tool for corruption this is a tool for protection. This isn't a tool. This is a per this is a being. This is its mm. own creature. Um, and data has always been about that. From the TV series, from all the films, arguably from the new TV stuff, better or worse, it's always about that. Um, and I think Spiner's just always brings it to life so so magnificently. Um, there are versions where you obviously you know he gets skin, he gets a different personality as a as a cocky older brother version. You see different. Attempts and the fact is that in the Star Trek universe, less so now in Marvel canon and blah 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 blah, but in the Star Trek: The Next Generation universe, he is the only one. I know there's lore, I know there's lol and all mm -hmm. that shit. I I get it, but he's the only one that seems to work. He seems to be the lightning in the bottle, fluke of nature, like humanity uh, in 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 our particular solar system. He shouldn't really exist somehow, but he does. So yeah, data was always going to be a choice for me because he is the ultimate. Is he a friend? Is he a villain? It's like he's absolutely a friend. He's absolutely the best officer on this fucking ship. He's not going to sacrifice your life because he thinks it's the right thing to do. He does it if you know the decisions he makes. He's quoting Starfleet regulation and stuff, but he's also consciously aware of I want to protect my friend. He gets a fucking cat. Cat teaches him so much. It's great. And he's he's all those things because he chooses to be is the Absolutely. ultimate thing, mm. you know. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I I remember seeing the scene where he gets 
the Borg Queen gives him human skin. Yeah. Uh, in the in first contact and like blows across it, like that was a real like weird boner moment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's but it's so, when she goes, and he goes. <laughs> yeah, uh, but so so like incredible to think about of like he's so been striving towards humanity uh and particularly in that film like the fact that he kind of essentially sacrifices that to take out the borg at the end mm. um which makes him all the more human you know uh yeah precisely he is such a great character like you say i think you know in a way he is the best character to come out of next generation and, and probably star trek as a whole I, I would one say of the maybe, best maybe all of star trek yeah yeah because, yeah and i think that uh, before everyone gets all fucking at my throat um <clears throat> he's the best because he's given the most time to develop and because he has so much breadth of story and and over platform of television and film so it's like he's the best character yeah he's the most developed character along with picard and mm. you know a handful of other people you, you know the relationship between mccoy uh, Spock and Kirk is like, yeah, that's really, really good because it's the central focus. Mm. Do you like Uhura? I like Uhura. She, she developed no because she was sitting in the background all the time, even in the yeah, film. Busy dancing around with fans and stuff. <laughs> oh, 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 fucking hell, Shatner. Yeah, and I think uh, you know the, the the to me the kind of the greatest characters in each Star Trek kind of franchise edition, whatever you want to call it tend to be the ones who are pushing that question of like what does it mean to be human oh no. in like yeah yeah exactly like it's that kind of spock in the in the first mm-hmm. uh, in the original series and then it's data and then it's kind of odo i'd say it's and then it's seven and nine seven and nine and maybe even yeah. the holographic doctor maybe the exactly who yeah. are the two big yeah. standouts from voyager yeah so fucking yeah Enterprise. a great a, a great choice matt thanks man uh jack what's your final pick bit more kid-friendly than a lot of these options. <laughs> I'm going to an oh, animated robot. Rated, like PG or some shit. <laughs> yeah, I guess. I, I no, can't imagine. That's because they're from the, from the 40s. and <laughs> can't imagine any seven-year-olds want to watch The Day the Earth Stood Still. <laughs> but they should. They fucking should. Maybe, yeah. maybe they should. That's what's wrong with the world these days. An animated film, you say, Jack? Yes. I'm diving back to 2008 talk about Wally because <laughs> I fucking love Wally it's one of my favourite Pixar movies mm. and I think it's a fascinating kind of concept <laughs> that have <laughs> a barely speaking central character like set way 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 in the future and we'll we'll get into that in, in a second about what what the world says for what we've done and all this kind of stuff to the planet and how humans have evolved and all this kind of stuff the fact that i think it's like the longest opening of a feature length film without any dialogue or something like or what certainly was at the time mm. i'm sure it's probably been broken in the last 14 years or so but it's a i think it's like a 11 15 minutes something like that where there is no words at all and it's fascinating and i think wally as a character he's this little trash compacting robot we talked about robots but essentially being slave labor and just being tools and stuff like that all of the other wally bots are exactly that they are just trash compactors with tire tracks and and little arms and 
basically lights instead of eyes. Stubby but, Johnny Fives. Yeah, kind of like little Johnny Fives. And he, through the magic of electricity, don't ask, gains sentience. And he suddenly goes on a little journey of existential crisis, basically, and trying mm. to understand his mission, his purpose, his place in the universe. Falls in love with another robot somehow, so much so that uh, Wally and Eve were the cake toppers at Emma and I's wedding. Yes, That's they were amazing. We love Wally and Eve. And it's this brilliant little, just adorable, entirely likable character. We've talked about, you know, whether it's. Uh, machine and mensch or ash or whoever like these all oh, they're corrupting figures oh they're you know programmed by the man or whatever wally is just the definition of innocence and sweetness and just trying to help people and help others around him and help eve and he's, he's just adorable and lovely closer to something like bb8 to be honest where he has this really kind of kid-friendly design a really nice again like weird vocalizations that don't really mm. he doesn't say much but he says so much with the tone of his voice again mm. kind of like bb8 there as well all the little bleeps and bloops don't mean anything but it's the tone and the reactions of the characters around him all this kind of stuff the moment when he has eva and all mm. that kind of stuff is just heartwarming and brilliant and yeah, I, I love the world that is built in Morley. Like, we're looking you know, 800 years into the future and thinking about what will become of humanity and when you finally see the humans, it's weird. And you talk about how long he's been there for. I think it's like the generation ship has been going for like six generations or ten generations or whatever it is, like hundreds mm. of years. And he has just been pottering about cleaning up stuff for doing his work. hundreds and hundreds of years just getting on with the job you know yeah exactly um and it's this lovely little how, how many robotic love stories are there in cinematic history and it could mm. so easily be clunky and overdone and stuff sure it's pretty straightforward and simplistic it is a kids movie but there is depth and complexity to both eve and Wally that I think really lends added value and added, you know, again, understanding from a from an adult perspective. Me going and watching it in my thirties now, it's still as good as when I watched it when I was in my teens when it came out. Like, yeah, it it still works in twenty twenty two. The designs for all of the different robots, like Eve's, kind of going back to iRobot, super slick white, basically an mm. Apple product design. And then Wally, as you said, Matt, is basically like Johnny Five. Is this little, barely hold together? Looks like something off Robot Wars that was made for thirty quid. <laughs> like he's this polar opposite end of the design spectrum from her, who's this super advanced. She can fly. She can shoot lasers. She does all this incredible stuff. And he's just there making cubes. Of it's, it's the classic, you know. Mm -hmm. She's the hotshot city girl, and he's just a country farmer boy because exactly. he's from hundreds of years ago. He's an outdated model. Mm. He's also yeah. Frankenstein himself from other bits and pieces, but that's, that's none here nor there. Mm. Um, but, but simultaneously, such a clever design that he's essentially like a trash compactor with wheels. Like, you can see the purpose of it. Yes. And yet it's so characterful. It's 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 yeah. terrific bit of design by, uh, by Pixar. 
Yeah, and you say it's 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 endearing and sincere, not saccharine, which means the story and the emotion and the visuals, beautiful, goddamn beautiful film, sells it. Mm. But the personality of, let's face it, mime, um, is yeah, is pretty what much. Really pulls it across. I've just a weird little. Uh, uh, I know we probably mentioned this before, but the fact that um, Jack's wedding, Jack's wedding toppers for him and Emma's wedding, and uh, I've just realised that just considering we're doing this, that. Uh, Wedding toppers from my wedding with my wife, also robots. It was Atlas and Peabody from Portal. Oh, nice! I was just like, like huh. <laughs> that's just a generational defiance of like you're gonna have like you know classic bride and groom and say no robots. <laughs> okay, <laughs> definitely thought you were gonna go for like Evangelions or some mech shit there, man. No. <laughs> uh, Portal, Portal, yeah, because the idea in theory that uh, you can get crushed and destroyed but you have to work together to get through the tests that this overarching evil weird creepy overlord woman is, is giving you i don't know what that bit's about but it's just working together anyway <laughs> who knows what this evil overlord woman may be matthew we'll never know margaret thatcher <laughs> <laughs> ain't that ain't that the truth hell. yeah i love um wally's little dancing his little like OCDness of organizing all his little things. He has so much mm. personality for just a box on wheels. It's fascinating. They give him so much little, little quirks eyes. and little aspects and all this kind of stuff. Mm. Yeah, the expressive eyes as well are just brilliant. And I think it's a real masterclass in simplicity of design working so well. In a similar way, completely different, but in a similar way to Tarzan Case as well. Yeah. It's such a like simplistic design things like well yeah he's a little trash compactor on wheels but they do so much with it that he feels unique and interesting and lovable mm. and i think it's um it's one of my favorite like tropes in in science fiction of the idea of kind of the robot that's been left doing its thing for so long that it's picked up weird habits and if you accrue enough like little weird quirks and stuff that's basically sentience like yeah, only yeah, yeah. only hu- only humans have like superstitions and stuff like that uh and uh, it, it reminds me a lot of red dwarf you know Crichton yeah. and uh yeah. and holly and that of like the computer that's going senile kind of thing it's like that's such an interesting way to think of like how sentience manifests of of being like yeah, if you if you want to be uh if you want to be more human, then we need to give you some like some neuroses and some fear and some stuff anxiety like that. anxiety and dementia. <laughs> oh, if yeah, that, if that ain't the truth, fuck me. Well, we're back round again, Mister Matum. Finish us off. Well, I'm sure the audience has been screaming at their headphones or whatever, going like, "Yes, okay, yes, you've covered Star Wars and you've covered Metropolis and you've covered." Wally, and you've covered, you know, aliens, all these obvious picks, but there's one that you haven't done. It's so obvious. They're just screaming at their their computers or their their iPhones or whatever, going like, "When are you going to talk about Atom from Real Steel?" Said no one ever. Let that hang for a second. <laughs> all all the Optimus fans are like, "Wait, what?" <laughs> I'm going to talk about Atom from the film. Real Steel, uh, the 2011 film about Rock'em Sock'em Robots, basically. The sports no, not basically, movie, if you will. Literally. Literally. Uh, yes, <laughs> it, is the ro- it is the robot boxing movie starring Hugh Jackman. I, I really like this film. 
I think it's uh, it's got I, a lot of heart to it. I think I've talked about this it. with you a few times, Tim. I think I don't think we can undersell this. Tim genuinely likes this film. Tim yeah. brings this film up a few times. <laughs> I remember watching it and being like, ah, that was fine, I guess. I will never think about this film ever again. I thought it was a surprisingly yeah. underrated film, but I didn't want to go like, oh, great, now I'm going to bring that up in a film about robots. We have, we have had this conversation in Matt's living room, a.k.a. the Sequelizer studio, before, and Tim has yeah. brought up Real Steel. And I never am not surprised by your love. <laughs> so please, this is your this is your moment to shine. This is your spotlight to talk about your childhood hero, Atom from Real Star. <laughs> um, I, I mean, I've got a friend, uh, Michael, who who has a similar affection for this film. I think he his passion for it may even uh, outstrip my own. Um, I didn't know that was possible. Yeah, I don't yeah. believe you. He goes to uh, another school, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, it's uh, so to cover it because I'm gonna imagine this is the film that of of the choices we've made. This is probably the one these people have seen. Essentially, it is set in the futuristic year of 2020. When oh uh, god, I hadn't forgot, thought about that. Yes, that. it is. Yep. Why? Uh, but Jesus. I will never understand. Fucking Predator Two did this as well. Like the distant future of about ten years from now. Like. You fucking know that's not going to be a thing. Terminated <laughs> in nineteen ninety seven. It's like it's a, yeah. Do fucking the, thirty the to fifty, future. maybe a hundred years. Like the near future of like I don't know, like eight and a half years from now. Like what the yeah. fuck are you talking about? What a terrible idea. <laughs> anyway, sorry, um, Tim. And it's it's actually an it's an adaptation of a Richard Matheson story who wrote yes, uh, it is. I Am Legend, and uh, it's it's essentially it's set in a world where b- boxing has been outlawed. Which, you know, it probably should, given the amount of, like, concussions and brain damage the boxers get. That's fair. Uh, and to replace it, you have robot boxing, where essentially you have these giant android robots that stand at about, like, 10 feet tall um, and are into the boxing ring and fight each other. Uh, and they are... So- some of them are piloted by humans who are controlling them kind of remotely, some of them work purely on programming. Some of them are a mix of it. And it, the film follows Hugh Jackman, who is uh, a former boxer who has since become a, a essentially a, a boxing robot owner, operator, uh, going around uh, these. And it, it, it has a real nice kind of uh, Americana kind of tinge to the whole thing where he's going around these like state fairs where it's like, oh, okay. You know, there's the, the 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 rodeo going on over here, and uh, you know, here's the here's the 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 toffee apple you know stand and stuff like this. And here, do you want to take a picture with my robot? And if you come back tomorrow, he'll be fighting in the ring, um, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and he is very down on his luck. Uh, he's in debt to some bad people. Finds out he has a son uh, whose mother has passed away, and essentially there's this a, a complicated kind of. Uh, um, stewardship kind of arrangement where he ends up looking after the sun for the summer um, and they find this old robot that was essentially like an early model that was designed as a basically a punching bag for the other robots it's a, tr- a training model designed to take a lot of punishment but it's not actually that strong and so essentially what you get is a combination of uh, Rocky and the Karate Kid but with robots. He ain't wrong. And it's essentially they they train this robot 
and it starts winning some small matches and then it makes its way up and it gets a big league match and then it attracts the attention of the owner of the the best robot in uh Zeus the the ultimate fighting robot uh and then they it go all comes down to this kind of like big show championship bout against Zeus who is when when it starts like completely demolishes Atom because it's so much more powerful but they they manage to hang on and the kind of the unique thing about Atom the robot is that it has a, a essentially a shadow mode so you can kind of it can watch you performing boxing or, or whatever uh and then kind of do that in real time and so when its other kind of programming is damaged the film ends where you've got essentially Hugh Jackman standing on the side of the ring doing all the boxing and the <laughs> robot doing the same boxing at the same time and I, th- I genuinely think this is a really good like it's a, it's a family film obviously it's like a you know it's for kind of about your kind of 10 year olds are probably the ideal audience for it uh, very much a, mm-hmm. like a, a dad's film at the same time it's um, a sad dad film it's a sad dad film he's uh, Hugh Jackman's a terrible father in this even when he's being <laughs> a good father he's a terrible father but the thing that I find really interesting in it is that at no point is Atom a sentient robot it is just a thing that copies other people but the people around it project personality onto it in a way that is so human i talked about earlier of like oh if i got a rumba i'd stick googly eyes on it because i want to treat it like a thing and it's this it's the exact same thing that you're watching it's this robot that is shaped like a human and it's got these two glowing eyes behind this kind of almost like a fencer's mask kind of grill going on yeah and it has no personality all it does is copy what it has seen and yet the people around it start treating it like it is a sentient robot like it is an individual cheering it on and all that kind of stuff and even to the point where in the final match when it's getting like really punched up it gets these dents in its kind of face mask thing that start to make it look like it's got this kind of wry grin on its face. And that's such a, it's that thing of human beings are so good at spotting faces in stuff. If you put like two lines and then uh, two, two dots and then a line, people will just go like, Oh, it's a face. It's like, it looks nothing like a face. It's It's a plug socket, you freak. Yeah, exactly. It's a (laughs) plug socket. It's a bollard. It's a whatever, you know, it's, it's a house, uh, but we can spot it. And it is, to me it's part of what this film is about is about the kind of the human tendency to just kind of project ourselves onto these objects and obviously that's very easy when it is a human shaped thing that walks around and copies what you do but i think it's such a because to me like when i went into real steel when i first saw it imagining that it was going to be about basically like an iron giant but with boxing where it's like, oh, they're going to find this robot, but it's actually going to have a personality. It's actually going to be sentient, and they're going to train it to box, and it's going to be great, and it's going to be a friend to the boy. And it's exactly what I thought it was going to be as well, Tim. Yeah. yeah, and it's not actually about that, because essentially the, ro- the, the robot and Hugh Jackman as the dad, the point is that they're basically the same thing. They're both a beaten-up old thing that needs you know a bit of like mm-hmm. love and attention to work, and so the robot is just a... don't know how to interact with their kid. Exactly. Um, they both could crush their child with one squeeze of their hand. Um, and 
the robot is just a reflection of him because he is the one who is programming the robot. And we talked at the start of the show, are robots good or bad? And it's like, well, ultimately, until they become sentient, robots are what we tell them to be. Um, and this film is kind of about that, uh, mm. even though that's probably putting more thought into it than the people who actually made it. <laughs> um, that said... I will say, this is another film. There's a lot of practical designs in this. They actually had real robots. Apart from when it's, like, boxing and walking around, there's a lot of, like, practical design work in there of, you know, they they built, I think, about 27 different robot designs or something. Um, and they are all on show. There's a really, there's an interesting, like, nice variety of designs in there. Um so yeah, it's there's some really nice production design work in here that's kind of falls in line with this because it's not trying to be super futuristic. It's just trying to be like a little bit into the future and the world is slightly different. You get the mm. sense that kind of the world diverged. It's not a, a point where the, 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 the future diverges six months down the line. It's like, no, back in the 70s, we somehow came up with robot boxing kind of thing. And this is the world <laughs> we end up with. Um, but yeah, that that is that is uh, why I picked Atom from Real Steel as my final pick um, and why I think it has something to say about robots in film. Mm, is that the deepest analysis of Real Steel that's ever happened on a podcast? Until you get... My friend and I, Michael, talking about it on yeah, the yeah. entire spin-off episode about Real Steel. <laughs> have to, have to get you sequel. on for an interseason episode all by yourself. That's just yeah. you two. Sequel, we'd me like and to Matt questioning too. you. Yep. Good Lord. Yeah, I, I must admit, um, as I said before, Real Steel is one of those films... I actually didn't think it was going to be the Iron giant kind of film. I didn't really have any expectations other than, eh, this thing. But it's genuinely surprising. I don't want to hype it up. As not, you, not you, not you. Air two Stockton. <laughs> no, no, I think it's perfectly does thing. I think it's fine. I think it's a three out of five. Um okay, but it's entertaining three out of five. That. I think that's engaging. Mm. I think that's actually quite considering it's just a you know, a rock'em sock'em you know, the the not even board game, the sort of children's toy made into a film. I mean mm. there's an anime called Megalobox, which I very, very much enjoy. Oh, Megalobox that's is a, great. That's a pretty ass series. Different principle, but similar to a degree, but the idea of this uh boxing world powered by machines and things. And Tim's right, it's interesting because this doesn't have a lot to say in terms of, well, I can put this. In the Pokemon universe, here we go. We all know it's animal fights, and that's bad and weird. I love you, Pikachu! It's like, cool, why are you making me fight these animals? Yeah. <laughs> Until I pass the fuck out. Um, and so the, the film doesn't say, what if these robots don't want to be punched into nothing all day mm. what if they decide to punch us oh. mm. because it's not about that and tim's right it's um it's about an emotive feeling more than it's about a logical expression and so the idea of the the robot atom getting knocked out by zeus to a degree his little blue light eyes go out and the kids get up get up mm. and you know it's purely coincidentally just rebooting but you know the kid, you know, he is the kid, and he gets up. Mm. It's like, no, he doesn't. He's a robot. Um, yeah, and <laughs> it's it's nonsense. Um, it's like screaming at your car to work. It's like your car isn't can't hear you. <laughs> yeah, 
or, or just saying like that's my girl and tapping the dashboard where it starts off like 10 times yeah. like, come on come on come on come on um it's it we we project it onto us uh, uh sorry we project our our feelings onto them there's a line from life of pi which is that tiger would kill you in a heartbeat there's no soul in there you're just seeing your own soul reflected back in its own eyes and i mm. love that shit and that's kind and i can't believe i'm fucking saying this it's kind of like real steel <laughs> Yeah, I would say, yeah, exactly, Matt. I'm glad you said that uh, Life of Pi is just as good as Real Steel and In a way, versa. Real Steel's better than Life of Pi. Some might say. Exactly. Real Steel came first. Yeah. To degree. I mean, obviously the book came first. But, but yes, the idea that it's just this concept of the, the robot is just a, a, a... It's a tool. It's a punching bag. It's a thing you're watching mm. doing a thing. It's pressing a control on a video game, except the video game happens to be a real life, and it's smacking that thing in the face. Um, mm. I, although classic, like, uppercut, r- right hook. I'm like, this is a really inefficient way of doing this. Voice yeah. controls are bad. And so he's obviously, you shadow me. It's like, there we go, that's a bit better. But also a bit weird. Um, but um, yeah, it's about us projecting our own souls into this machine. And you say about the mimicry, for example. Yeah, it's, it's still just a, you know, a punching bag sparring bot. It's not actually evolved. It doesn't do an iron giant. Mm. I'll be right here. Mm. Ah, you stay. Superman. Superman. Mm-hmm. It doesn't do that shit. It's um it's just saying, yeah. And then he got punched in the face some more. <laughs> um and the dad continued to be shit. Uh, yeah. But and yeah. then the one that looks like a gaming PC broke. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's it's That's the same the as thing. same as Rocky Four. If you were the, the 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 simple one training in the mountains with the big old logs, logs of wood being rocky. He's the one you yeah. root for. Not the guy with all the high-tech machines. I must break you, bullshit. Anyway. Good, interesting selection we've given you there, I think. Everybody? Yeah, a wide berth from machine and mensch to atom and real steel and everything in between. No Optimus. <laughs> People are weeping right now. We did. We've done a whole Transformers episode oh, before. Oh, I'm not Please saying don't. we should. I'm just saying there are people who are saying, Don't, don't oh, listen to that shit. Nobody is doing that wiki bullshit. Everybody, uh, feel free to jump up on Twitter and Discord and shout Optimus because we know you're out there thinking. Just tweet mm-hmm. Optimus at all caps. Why are you mention Soundwave? Oh, uh, fuck off. <laughs> anyway, if you would like to tweet Optimus as in all caps or message us on the Discord or anything like that, if you want to do it on Twitter, we are sequelizers, of course, on Twitter and Instagram as well. If you want to join the Discord, you can go to sequelizers.com. There is a link to the Discord in there. You just click the little invite button and you get logged in straight away if you already have a Discord account. You can find the shop there for our brand new t-shirts and pins and all the old t-shirts and posters and stuff as well. As I said, you can get a discount code if you are a patron of a certain tier as well. You get 10% off all the merch. You can also get archives of every single episode we've ever done over the last five and a bit years. There's the episodes tab there as well. There's the live streams. All of the live streams, including the 16 weeks leading up to our Tournament of Champions Ultimate Film Showdown that we did recently as well for our fifth anniversary. It it were epic and difficult, so please do feel free to go and catch up on those. Again, all archived on sequelizers.com there as well. If you want to tweet at me directly, I am JLW Chambers on all the different social media. Matt. How can people find you on the internet? Stogs, S-T-O-G-H-Z. You can go to cheesemeat.com and see the things that I make. You can go to the redrighthand.co.uk and read my reviews. You can also go to BBG Wrestling and search Sumo Drop uh, for the sumo wrestling podcast that I do with my wife and Fox. 
Um, Tim, if I wanted to peruse the depths of your positronic net, where could I go to do that? And all I would search for on said positronic net is Tim's boxing tips. <laughs> Bleep blorp. I am trivia underscore lad on twitter.com. Definitely not a bot. Uh, a real a real human uh, boy i'll uh i'll i'll identify as many uh pictures of sailboats as you want me to is this a crosswalk oh shit <laughs> can you find the traffic lights and sailboats we'll never yeah. know because the robots have already taken over with that out of the way we will of course be back next week with another interseason pick and it is in fact an ep pick Ooh. Ooh. oh yeah yeah, sorry, I've interesting one. <laughs> something we've something we've touched on a couple of times in this show, we've discussed in in more sort of specific examples. We're going to talk about the history of this particular thing, kind of in a similar way we've done with the robots. This episode will have specific picks, all that usual stuff. But it is a very interesting topic. I'm really excited to talk about. It. It's one of my favourite things in movies to talk about from mm-hmm. a production and behind the scenes standpoint and how it all comes through on camera and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, interesting topic for next week's episode. It's those uh it's those fake ball bags we see in films. <laughs> 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 Who's creating that, them? Who's masking these fa- things? It's that fake dick they had to create for Willem Dafoe yeah. because he was just too hung to deal with. Why they make him so realistic? What company's doing it? Jack wants to know, and we want to tell you about it. Join us next week. It's a topic I've been fascinated about for decades. <laughs> yes. Thank you very much for listening, everybody. We will see you next week for more inter-season goodness. Bye.